This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from AllComic.com, episode 167. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lon Ramayasha, and you are already dead. Excited to listen to this podcast on Fist of the North Star. From Bronson and Tetsuahara, we are finally covering the classic 80s Shonen Jump manga, finally re-released in North America from Wiz Media, and we are shocked, we are shook, we are excited to dig into it with a great panel of guests, including Grant the Thief. From the day they can these Nick Rowe from Wellcomer.com and returning guest Diana, cosplay extraordinaire. We go over this first volume of Fist and North Star. What do we think about this video release? What do we think about the early story of Fist and North Star and the themes in, that make it still resonant and stand tall to this day? Really stand in the test of time. It's a really fantastic read. It's a really fantastic conversation we had. And I think you will enjoy it a lot. I am shock. You are shock. We all shock. I'm just, I'm I'm so excited for this. Uh, I've been really looking forward to talking about this since uh, Viz made their legendary announcement, I will say. And yeah, I think we had a great panel of guests. Obviously, you know, I'm really happy to have Nick and Diana back on again. They're always fun to have on. But I'm also even more excited that we got to have Granton finally for an episode of the main show after, you know, uh, doing some stuff with them here and there uh, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where we uh, talked about the first part of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Uh, and ho- hopefully we'll talk about more JoJo's in the future. I know Grant's at least up for it. It's just kind of a matter of uh, trying to figure out when we want to do that. But uh, that is coming in the future. And so, yeah, I mean, yeah, as uh, Lum mentioned, uh, we specifically talk about Volume 1 of the series as kind of a primer for maybe people who are newer to Fist of the North Star who have uh, maybe have heard of it but haven't, like, read it and just kind of want to know, like, what they're getting into. Um, because, you know, feasibly, there are a lot of people who haven't read Fist of the North Star because it just hasn't really been available or only available through really bad, shitty scans, you know? So... Or if you're one of the many people who thought, hey, is this a JoJo's ripoff? Well, this is the podcast for you. Uh, I still can't believe how many comments there were under that initial tweet anyway. um, But yeah, this was a fun discussion. And I know we kind of say it a few times throughout the discussion, but I promise you we will come back to Fist of the North Star when all of it's released. And we will have like a an, an even fuller, probably even longer discussion on it. We spent so long talking about the first volume that honestly... I like shake with excitement and fear at how long it will take us to cover all of the series. But uh, until that day comes, I think we should just get right into our discussion. Lum, if you're ready. It's time to go into the sunset, into the vast desert terrain that is the world of manga and approach this great podcast awaited us in the distance we will see who truly is the king under the sun because at the end of the day there can be only one just like highlander
You have already listened to this podcast. <laughs> Roll credits. No, no, the podcast is only just getting started. We're at the very beginning talking about a classic finally made available once again. Tetsuharu Baronson's Fist of the North Star. One of the most tying hype action manga ever made. And we are going to talk about it today with some amazing guests. Some of the biggest most ardent disciples of the Hodoshin Ken. We have got returning guest Diana's Hi! As well as returning guest Nick. Oh my god, I sound so uncool. (laughs) (laughs) And for the first time on our main show, we are very pleased to have on Grant from the Blade Licking Knees podcast. Very appropriate niche, um, very reflective of this series. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the the show I was born to talk about. Yes, <laughs> there's a blade licking teeth no uh, sooner than the seventh page of this very book. This series rife with them. It was literally made for you. Mm-hmm. My namesake, my <laughs> fellow jobber goon. <laughs> no, I had to show up. I couldn't. I couldn't let Diana be the uncoolest person on the show. So I had to show up. <laughs> r- lift. You know, put it on my back, lift everybody up. <laughs> no, you guys are all very cool. You are oh. bigger badasses than any of the disciples of Hokoro Shinken. You are the true masters of the Hokoro Shinken. Kenshiro, throw that man in the trash where he belongs. You deserve to stand conquerors of the sun yeah it literally would have been like illegal if we didn't have like any of you guys on for this discussion at all so (laughs) (laughs) thank you we definitely i I know that we are some of the few that have been railing about it like you'll just catch us randomly on twitter like and another thing fist of the north star you know (laughs) Oh like my god, how yelling. many years have I been tweeting about, wow, I wish you could read it in English. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I was I was looking through my old tweets earlier today, and um, I was trying to find my old, like, Fist of the North Star thread I started, like, way back when. And uh, I, I, fa- I found a few tweets from, like, at least, like, one or two years ago where I'm just like, man, we could really use, like, a new release of Fist of the North Star. And lo and behold, it happened a year later. <laughs> so never say never. No, we're in a renaissance where we're getting all the classics we never thought would be possible to come out in English. We're in a golden age of manga licensing. Mm-hmm. There, there is no impossible anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's been shattered because of this. I have English Fist of the North Star and English Rose of Versailles. I can pretty much almost die happy now. Yeah. <laughs> there's, like, there's like two things left that I would like to read in English that aren't already available, and that is absolutely wild. Yeah, it's it's been really amazing to see. I mean, it's really in the year of our Lord, 2020X. It's a lot easier to be a fan of older things uh, than it ever was growing up. Um, there's so much classic stuff in print now and available for streaming. You know, like you just, you want to go read Fist of the North Star? You can do that now. You want to go watch Votom? Sure, whatever. Like, okay. Like, I don't know. Like, it's weird. It's really weird, uh, you know, just to have all this stuff available, legal, high quality translations, excellent print. You know, this is a hardback, gorgeous cover. It's the, you know, this is not a, a cheap release. Uh, it's really impressive and kind of wonderful 
time to be able to have that for not only for us, but hopefully for a whole new generation of fans, really. I think it's kind of ironic that English language is one of the few markets where Fist of the North Star never really took off. And yet we currently also have by far the most nice luxury release of it. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, hopefully a new generation can read it and realize that it's not a JoJo ripoff. Quite the opposite. You read this first volume, and you're like, wow, Araki really cribs so much from Early Fist of the North Star. I mean, this entire confrontation between Kenshiro and Shin, like, he he recreated so many imagery for that fight between uh, Dio and Jonathan in their mansion. Oh, there yeah. Are, I wasn't even trying, and I could recognize panels where I'm like, hmm... Mr. Araki, what were you doing here? I mean, Araki you walking up the staircase to Shin. I mean, come on. Araki, Araki copied that whole sale for JoJo. In Araki's defense, though, he's not the first nor only person to crib heavily from this manga. I mean, not at all. You know, uh, ever, ever, if you're going to crib, too, crib from the best, right? I mean, goodness gracious. Mm. I mean, for sure, for sure. <laughs> um, we should probably put out there before we like get on any further that uh, I think for the purposes of this podcast, if we if we haven't already made it clear at the top of the show, we're going to be specifically kind of sticking with Volume One uh, in particular. In the future, though, I think it's safe to say that we're all going to try to like do our best to come back and do, like, a real full, like, in-depth, whatever you want to call it, review, analysis, retrospective of Fist of the North Star when it's all eventually out. Because I think it's safe to say that we're probably going to get all of it at this point. I I think it's pretty likely anyway. Don't jinx it yeah. like that. <laughs> well, hopefully, barring a, a sudden bust for Viz Media. But, uh, no, I think they're pretty committed to releasing everything that they license and put out there. So, yeah, I think we'll get all the books. And uh, so we'll see you all for the full discussion in 2026. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it seems like they're making a pretty concerted effort and just holding volume one in my hands and you see the quality of it and everything. And uh, again, they've got all that, you know, my hero money and stuff coming in. They they got plenty of income streams right now. I, I think the commitment is there to do it and do it right. Because this has been tried and failed before, but, uh, you know, if they can't do it, uh, you know, I, with the way manga's moving right now, I, I don't understand who could, really. So, I, I think we we can be pretty confident that they will finish it. Yeah. If, if for some reason it all falls apart, you can you could blame me. I'm the one who jinxed it. You can all, yeah. you can all show up <laughs> in, at my door and... and Thanks, Colt. <laughs> way to go. Are you happy? This was to the third time. This was supposed to be the charm. <laughs> And you just threw it all away. <laughs> like Kenshiro exploding someone from the inside out. Oh, man. Um, so I, I guess, you know, I'm going to go off the assumption that, like, at least some people who maybe find this podcast may not be as familiar with Fist of the North Star. I don't know. There's probably at least some people out there, especially from, we kind of joked about it earlier, from all the comments that uh, people made under Viz's initial tweet where literally everyone was like, yeah, this looks like JoJo. Why does this look like JoJo? Is this a JoJo ripoff? <laughs> oh, that actually happened. No, yeah, there were a lot of comments like that. Yeah, it's insane. That's insane that people don't recognize Fist of the North. They don't recognize Kenshiro. Like I, that's <laughs> when they haven't seen the series. I can't believe there are just so many people who never heard of it. Back in the two thousands, when I got into JoJo, and I, people saw the art of it. 
and I went to go and buy one of the copies of Viz Stardust Crusaders, the first release, the person ringing me up was like, what's this? This looks like Gayfest of the North Star, and that was the exact opposite. Oh, boy. Gay Fist of the North Star? That's an oxymoron. How dare you imply Fist of the North Star is straight? How dare you? (laughs) 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 I don't I'll I'll say personally, I don't blame the kids for not knowing, like, it, it, is it their fault, really, that they wouldn't know, you know? Like, it hasn't been in print ever. That's fair. (laughs) In their lifetimes. You know, I don't blame them. No, it's not been visible. And of course, with the glut of titles available, you know, it's... We should just be thankful they know JoJo's. Let's just be thankful they know JoJo's, truthfully. (laughs) Which is a huge accomplishment in and of itself. Mm -hmm. And in many respects, has paved the way for the relicense of Fist of North Star, so... Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I honestly believe that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like... The fact that the JoJo fandom managed to grow from, like, me and five other people being the entire <laughs> Anime Expo JoJo cosplay gathering to what it is now. And they're like, okay, maybe there is a market for some of this really old action manga. Mm-hmm. Oh, for sure. I don't want to get too off topic, but back with that initial Stardust Crusaders release, someone at Viz did tell me, we will never print another volume of JoJo ever again once they <laughs> once they completed that run because it sold so poorly when they when yeah. they ran it the first time. Wow. Someone I knew, so I think someone I know there was saying that the last few volumes was just a passion project that was printed by the sheer willpower of Naruto money alone. Yeah. <laughs> I can believe that. I can believe yeah, there yeah. were many mm-hmm. series that only got fully published because they of, were losing yeah. money. Like, Mm -hmm. big time. I worked at a bookstore during that, and no one was buying old manga. Not at all. So uh, the way that the market has changed in the past, uh, I don't want to think how many years that's been. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, But before we kind of move on with the rest of the discussion, uh, does anybody want to give, like, a quick synopsis as to, like, what Fist of the North Star is about for anyone listening who may be new to the series? Yeah, in the far distant future of 1990X, like a nuclear apocalypse happened. And so basically the world has become kind of a wasteland where people have formed gangs and are fighting for resources and have kind of lost their way and become like violent hooligans that have been motivated and fueled by cruelty. And in the midst of all this mania there is a soul hero who walks the world to protect the innocent and deliver justice on the wicked and that man's name is kenshiro who has inherited the fist of the north star which is a secret martial art inspired by chinese skills of assassination and acupuncture in which he can strike pressure points on the human body and cause them to explode from within and manipulate their body from within through these pressure points and so he's a consummate badass who can take on all challengers no matter how big they are if they are tormenting the weak kenshiro will stand up for them and that's what we have to go on for the first one. And obviously there's like even more lore to the Hokuto Shinken and Kenshiro's past and stuff. And in this first one, we get some of that with his relationship with his fiance Yuria and his ex-friend 
Shin, who is one of the disciples of the Nanto Seiken, which there's also a lot of war with Nanto Seiken. There are a lot more disciples of Nanto Seiken we'll see in the future, but that's basically the main conflict of the first one, is uh, Kenshiro runs afoul of Shin's group once again, and basically is able to settle his old grudges with his former friend-turned-rival who kidnapped his fiance. See, I was just gonna say it's Mad Max with martial arts and crying. I was gonna say it's basically if Mad Max starred Bruce Lee. That's exactly the pitch. <laughs> yeah. That is the elevator pitch right there. <laughs> I would add that became a mechanism for Tetsuo Hara to insert shameless references to all his favorite movies, <laughs> musicians, and pro wrestlers, uh, <laughs> as well as an inadvertent discussion on toxic masculinity. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a really important to understand that it's like, if it's cool, we should put it in there. It's pretty much a driving force behind a lot of what's going on from films to to other you know literary traditions and stuff down to just like wouldn't it be cool if when they exploded they went wouldn't that be funny like let's do that you know so it's just kind of it's very much wearing its influences on its sleeves in the same way that things that would it would eventually inspire would be very clearly like hey we're we're doing fist of the north star you know stick with us (laughs) (laughs) but um i guess just to kind of move on with the discussion um you know, I guess we can all kind of talk about like how we got into Fist of the North Star and like what our first impressions were. Um, I guess, Diana, do you want to go first? Oh, Lord. Well, <laughs> I got into it. Please, everybody, do not hate me for this story. Uh oh. I'm ready to hate. <laughs> Remember how I said back in the 2000s, some, someone who was uh, ringing my copy of JoJo up was like, is this gay, Fist of the North Star? Which one? There is nothing wrong with that. But two, yeah, the art style for JoJo kind of did look like that. And enough people were being kind of really rude to me about being a girl, very visibly, extremely into JoJo. Mm, That's always fun. (laughs) And then there's all the Fist of the North Star, like, comparisons that I was seeing. And I'm like, okay, I'll go read this. You're going to be rude to me about being a girl who likes this? Well, I'm going to like this even more. So I picked it up and... It was absolutely nothing like some of the uh, dudes posting memes led me to believe, and I liked it far more than anything that they had been implying it was. <laughs> I, I imagine, I, maybe someone's already made this, I don't know, I haven't seen it, but like, I, I imagine this is the kind of series you could like make uh, make that one particular meme out of, where it's like the, the guy like totally missing the point of Fist of the North Star, where it's like, oh, Fist of the North Star is about, you know, t- tackling like toxic masculinity or whatever, and then it's like, ooh, uh, the big punchy guy, big explosions, gore, or what? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I actually really like your story, Diana. Like becoming a Fist of the North Star fan out of spite is incredibly appropriate. (laughs) I think. I think that's. I think that's perfect. Like, no, I'll take my revenge on them, and I'll like it more than them. Like, I I think it's great. (laughs) You just you just come into the comic book store a few months later, just like all buff and everything, ready to take a body. They're they're licking their floppy comics backboards, like (laughs) you know, in their football armor. It really is, though, a fact that a lot of the, uh, the fact that I like so many violent comics is entirely, at least somewhat, due to sheer spite for girls get out of my phantom. Mm, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> nope, not happening. I'm just gonna like it even more. <laughs> but I guess, um, Nick, do you want to go next? 
Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, on my first exposure to it was the movie back in the days when the gatekeeping threshold was like, you're a real anime fan if you've seen Akira, Fist of the North Star, Vampire Hunter D, <laughs> that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I watched that movie and I was like, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. And thankfully, the original Viz release was available at the time. So I, you know, got all those and it never ended. You know, they never finished it. So I was kind of left hanging and I just kind of hung on to it from there and gathered everything I could. And I eventually read it all the way through and and got my hands on a on a run of the comics and, you know, just continued to be a fan ever since. Um, It's just one of those things that you see it and it's like, yes, this is it. This is the thing. And I will like it a lot. <laughs> um, so I don't know this off the top of my head. How far did Viz get into the release originally? Not far enough. Four or five volumes, I think. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. Boy, yeah. I, to think that in a short amount of time, we'll be already be past that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it looks like they got about 44 chapters in in their release, and then the Raijin edition got about 74, so... Wow. Yeah, I think Raijin went to Volume 9, maybe? Volume 9 or 10, something like that? So, at the rate that these releases are going, we'll surpass that. It'll take a, a, a year and a half, but yeah, after six or so books, we'll get past that, so that's pretty exciting. Oh, wow. I didn't realize Raging Comics like got further than that. Um, I've, I've, I'm not really familiar with their release in particular. I, I know back in the day, you know, when I was like, oh man, I really want to own Fist of the North Star. Like I, I, I used to scour like Amazon and eBay for like affordable copies of like Viz's original release, and I just never really acted on it. But um, I guess Grant, do you want to go next? Sure, sure. Uh, my experience was also the movie first uh, in the Saturday anime days uh, when I was but a young man. Uh, and it was very much me and all of my little elementary school buddies running around watching and kind of collabing with all of our tapes. And it was always like, all right, let's get together. And what do you have? What do you have? And we were watching and copying and so forth. Um, so it was very much, uh, I mean, it was something that I liked because I thought it was cool. And this was the era of anime is not kid stuff. And I was 100% (laughs) coming to anime for what was being sold to me, which was exploding heads and boobs (laughs) and things that I just could not see in American cartoons. Uh, so I was definitely here for it. And in my mind, it was exactly the same as don't, you know, don't, don't uh, string me up here, but it fell in the same category as like Ninja Scroll or MD Geist or all these other, just like hyper violent, super schlock. It was so cool. I had no clue what was going on. I just liked all the violence and thought it was awesome. Um, (laughs) but then of course, like as time went on and I came to revisit the series multiple times throughout life, uh, both the film and then eventually the, the series itself, you know, the manga actually got to last, uh, but I, uh, MD Geist and Ninja Scroll and some of those other kind of hyper-violent ones sort of fell a little bit less in my estimation. But Fist of the Norse Guard just kind of kept coming back to it um, till eventually I watched the anime again because I knew it from from past experience and that it was funny and violent or whatever. And I was just kind of there for the memes, right? Um, but about... Uh, I won't get too much into detail because we don't want to talk about anything outside of the first volume. But somewhere in about the first 30 episodes or so, I went from like, haha, this is still great, exploding heads, man, anime is cool, to, oh my god, I'm in this. Like, this drama between men <laughs> and the passion and like the just the art of it uh, totally drew me in. And then I became a super fan and now I'm just like ride or die for it. Um, so it it has that its quality has only grown to the surface, uh, whereas a lot of that other stuff from that 
that era maybe has fallen in my estimation, I guess. And now I would consider it is definitely one of my top five things ever. <laughs> no, no, for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm sure maybe we'll bring this up later, but, you know, I, I do think Fist of the North Star is one of those one of those older series that like really kind of like holds up and still like, you know, holds up today, you know, even amongst like all the like current stuff that everybody likes. But um, I guess, Lum, do you want to go next? Sure thing. So yeah, it took me a while to get into Fist of the North Star after first hearing about it. I think that I can't place when I first have heard Fist of the North Star, but I feel like when you get into anime, at least at the time I got into it in the 2000s, it was at least an ubiquitous enough thing that you would know that the series is about a guy who has like scars in his chest and the shape of like the Big Dipper and he goes around and he like punches people and it seems like they don't react to it at first and then he turns away from them and walks away and they like charge after him and he's, then he turns and says, you are already dead and they explode. And, like, that's your perception of it. And you see gifts like that floating around and whatnot. Uh, but in terms of, like, actually watching, reading it, I think it probably got added to, like, Hulu or something when I was in high school in, like, early 2010s. And so I started watching uh, some episodes then. And I got a few episodes in, but I didn't uh, keep up with it. And then it was really in college, early college, this was probably around 2013-ish, when I was really wanting to get into a lot of classic series uh, that I finally was like, okay, now I, I really want to finally read Fist of the North Star and see what it's all about. And so I read through it and I ended up really enjoying it. You know, I was a little trepidatious at the start because my perception of it was kind of along the lines of what Grant says, like I thought it was just a hyper-violent series and there wasn't a ton of uh, meat to it. But like reading it, obviously there is a lot of uh, brain to it. There's a lot of heart to it. There's a lot of topical themes to it. So I really enjoyed this great, compelling character. So really, really enjoyed it and dabbled with other pieces of franchise since then. But I don't think I have revisit the manga since I initially read it, but I really did enjoy the series. I was really looking forward uh, to this release. And then I knew also one part of the story is like I do know a lot about like the botch re uh, releases, English releases of Fist and North Star because like many older comics, I learned about it by reading Jason Thompson's House of a Thousand Manga posts. So I remember like you know, that was when I would kind of really learn more about the series and that there was like more to it than just the hyperbonds and also the release history uh, that he described and, you know, their attempts at Viz to release Fist and like when it became clear that they had to discontinue it, they threw like a Fist party to kind of give it a farewell. Like that was very interesting to me. And so reading more about like how special the series was and what it meant to a lot of the at least Jason and the team at Viz who were working on that early release was super interesting. And so I think that also is what maybe convinced me to, to check out the anime early on and then the manga, give that a proper read later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I guess for as for me, I, um, you know, I, I think I read Fist of the North Star uh, around the same time, around like the early 2010s or so. I, I have such vivid memories of like, you know, getting into the series 
uh, around the time I was like still in high school, you know, I would have classes where like I would have more free time than other classes or whatever to just kind of fuck around and do whatever. Um, and uh, thankfully, a lot of my classes allowed me to be on the computer and on the Internet. And I would that's that's kind of when I would like read the most manga. Honestly, it's just kind of during my <laughs> downtime and not doing, not doing schoolwork. Um <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, I can remember in college, like, I definitely was procrastinating on working on a paper by reading Fist and Yarn Star. I remember I was reading, like, one of the very final battles in the series when I was supposed to be working on a paper. <laughs> oh, man. I, I think I had, like, a web design class or something. It was either web design or, like, typography. I don't remember. It was one of those kinds of web classes or whatever, where, uh, like, I have vivid memories of, like, reading Fist of the North Star scanned back in the day and, like, getting... Ooh, those scans were bad. <laughs> no, I remember trying to, like, read those again a few years ago, back when I think we originally thought about doing an episode on it, like, you know, but before it was announced to be released again. And, uh, yeah, they're not super great. I don't think they're, like, the worst things I've ever seen, but, like, they're still not that great either. They're also double translated, which when I figured that out, I was just like, screw this. I'm just going to go read it in French. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not like it's not quite like Clash of the Bionoids level bad, but like Clash of the Bionoids, I that was my only access for a long time. So that that's we did what we had to. <laughs> no, yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, um, I try to think I think I started reading it because like I saw a friend of mine was reading it like th like that and Jojo both too and i i kind of like read it over his shoulder and i was like "Ooh, this is that fist of the north star thing i've heard about i should really like go check this out and then i did and like um i guess i don't know how much of uh i'm trying not to give like too much away but i remember reading certain big final battles in my web design class you know on my breaks and just just being like in awe, like oh my god this is the most awesome thing i've ever read and like fist of the north star is really one of those things where like the appeal of it to me as as a teenager at the time was like this big strong guy punching guys until they explode and that was kind of like the uh, i don't think i really got into the nuance of it back then as a teenager because i don't know if i was like very emotionally mature back then but like <laughs> even like you know uh rereading the first volume for this new release like even as early as, like, chapters two and three with that two-part story with, like, you know, the old guy uh, finding rice seeds for his village and him wanting to get it back to his village or whatever and all that stuff about living for tomorrow and everything. Like, that that stuff really hits. It's... It was so beautiful. Yeah. It really encapsulates kind of the, the theme of what Fist and Arts are is really about when Gajira really is fighting for. To protect people who are, you know, trying to live on in this world, who are not like engaging in this cruelty to others, but who are just trying to rebuild a community and uplift and help the others of their community. Mm hmm. I like, I, I think chapter one in particular serves as like a really good hook for uh, obviously for new readers who are ch checking out a new thing. You know, uh, I'm sure people back then who got into it were probably like, oh my God, this is like the most cool and violent thing I've ever read. I'm going to keep reading this. And then, you know, chapters two and three really kind of show their hand with like how emotionally mature it can actually be and really kind of like, uh, re really like shows its hand really early. And I was like really impressed with like how well that worked, honestly, just kind of looking back on it. But yeah, I mean, again, uh, I don't know, it was really too much else to my story i just have a lot of i just have a lot of great memories of just reading fist of the north star as a teenager and like uh, uh blasting acdc while i read it because that was kind of my music of choice uh 
if you, if, if you want an OST to read Fist of the North Star 2, that, that's my recommendation anyway. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I don't know what else to say, except Fist of the North Star is good. And I loved like what I read of it. And I really can't wait to like get back into reading it again after so long. Because I, I um, it's a it's a good thing we're just kind of mostly covering volume one because like this could be a seventeen hour episode otherwise. <laughs> I mean, there are going to be eighteen volumes of this edition, so uh, one hour for every volume. Yeah, I mean, yeah, is it? I I imagine that someone could very well start if it's a Northstar podcast and do very well. That I wouldn't be surprised. On, honestly, I'm kind of surprised Grant hasn't like a thought about it yet. <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 this is not the first Fist of the North Star podcast I've been on this month. Uh, I've talked about it about 16 <laughs> different times this month alone. I've got prior episodes on it. Like, there's a whole, you could just do Fist of the North Star, really, uh, as a whole, as a, you know, a whole genre of podcasting, really. But, um, I, I guess what's really important, especially for people who are new and like, we're going to go through the first volume and, you know, I wouldn't call it, super uh, heavy. It seems a little rote, especially if you're familiar with the thousands of things that it helped codify and inspire. Um, But what's really important, I think, is to keep in mind, all these stories have something pretty similar to them in that you can completely enjoy it as a complete, like, surface level experience. It's cool buff dudes blowing up other dudes' heads, blood's everywhere, it's it's violent, it's hilarious, it's got, you know, this kind of heavy metal vibe. All that is there and present in a 100% valid way to enjoy it as a text, but there is a lot of depth that will develop over time that makes it more than just the head exploding stuff. Although if you're here for that, it's got it, like, don't worry. But there's, there's, a, there's a richness here, and there's a reason, you know, the melodrama to me, obviously it's not the same as Rose of Versailles, but, you know, before the episode, Diana brought up Rose of Versailles being in print, too. Like, to me, the melodrama is very equivalent to something like, you know, the major shoujo works, right, and stuff, and it's like, this, this drama between the characters is so engrossing, and you get so pulled in by it, and the, the thematics that are at play. And you may not see that here, but, you know, if this is your first time with the series, like, keep going, especially after this first volume. Once you really get into some of the meat of what's coming down the road, it'll hook you. I don't know. I'd say you get a little taste of that with what goes on between Kenshiro and Shin. Because, like, on the surface, Shin is just this comical bad guy. And then you find out that he's... And you'll find out more later. But uh, you find out that he's compensating for, like, a lot of insecurities. And he does so in ways that harm countless people. And then when he's left to reflect on that, he's like, oh, man, I made a mistake. And it's a pretty incredible turn, even if he doesn't fully repent Repent in the end. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I think Shin is... I, I like that the anime kind of gave Shin a little bit more heat than the comics. And I, I get the sense that the comic also kind of... There's a little bit of regret for using Shin as kind of a throwaway villain like that. I think so. It's so interesting that Shin is basically the starter villain of this series, but... He was so memorable and compelling that later on the series they keep bringing him up and recontextualizing his role in relationship to Kentro. And then in adaptations, they expand on his role. Like, he is the, the antagonist of these first 10 chapters. Uh, but in the anime, they expand that out into 22 episodes. Damn. And then, of course, in the movie, he's like one of the three primary antagonists on the same level as the main antagonist of the first half of the series. 
<laughs> so, oh, absolutely, absolutely. He still doesn't get it. He, he still gets disrespected around every turn. I mean, in Lost Paradise, he was the tutorial boss. <laughs> Damn. I don't mean to. I, I didn't mean to. I, I totally agree with Nick. By the way, I don't mean to imply that Shin is not a rich villain. But it, especially in the anime as well, it's a little episodic early on. And if you've a lot of people who may be coming to this who are used to the genre that this helped codify might be like, ah, this is just another thing. We're just going to see him travel town to town. Keep it's just guys another shonen, just another shonen. Right. And like, <laughs> I don't mean to imply that Shin is not a rich and textured villain. I think he's great. Some of the events that happen here, like the giant flying X kick or the, the, the seven scars and everything with Yuria, some of the most enduring imagery in the series, it's like critical. Right. But I think the real, I, I, for me personally, I didn't like understand why this was a worldwide, like I knew it was good when I first started enjoying it, but I didn't understand why it was a phenomenon until we get past Shin. And I don't think that's an uncommon perspective. It's like, well, when you get to the, when the world opens up a little more, it's like, oh, this is what's going on. Oh, this is really great. You know, not, again, no, no shade to Shin. No shade to Shin. I would agree with you because I actually, I liked the Shin stuff early on. I, when I first read it, I liked the Shin stuff, but then there was kind of a stretch of this in North Star uh, where I was like, well, the series feel is kind of, you know, spinning its wheels with Kenshiro fighting up like these groups of bad guys. But then when we get into the introduction of the, again, the main antagonist of the first half of the series and then Kenshiro's relationships and then more lore about the whole Kodoshinken and other characters they had pulled in, like more of the supporting cast, uh, that of the series starts really coming together. That's when it Shizuno started really started clicking together to me. And again, not to spoil anything, but Kenichiro's relationship with his fellow disciples of the Fort Fizzino Star, his brothers, uh, is like a super oh, compelling yeah. part of the story. And that's where the story really starts to shine, is when those characters get introduced. For me, part of the it's um not to be too much of a spoiler, but once you get into more characters who have kind of different takes on what's been going on if that says like once there was a girl who is not Yuria that's when I was just like okay now we have now we're talking yeah. <laughs> that too I love Yuria don't get me wrong but Mamiya <laughs> this is a Mamiya household I agree <laughs> it's there really are so many more interesting characters so much more plot and so many more emotions. Like, it's all about the emotions. This is a series about heads exploding and crying. And there is more crying than heads exploding, I think. <laughs> yeah, but whereas in this first volume, there's a lot more heads exploding than there is crying. Yeah. Eventually, it just becomes about emotional bonds and the, and like, even the ethics of when are, when is fighting too much, violence, to protect versus violence just to harm, all sorts of stuff. It's really, and like you mentioned, even with Shin, just there's this theme that's just pervasive throughout a lot of the series about like regretting the actions you've taken and what has led you to this point and what can you do now that you've realized that. And that's something that really helped make it special for me. Mm -hmm. absolutely shin is such a great encapsulation of that team because he is a guy who flaunted his power used his power to amass his own kingdom essentially but he could get all of the riches all of this power but he couldn't get the one thing he really wanted which was the, his love reciprocated 
and he couldn't have the one person that he really wanted by his side. And so, you know, he became this grand conqueror and he just is hollow and empty inside. <laughs> See, this is why it's important to give the violent sociopathic expert martial artists a hug. Because otherwise they do this <laughs> and it's just bad. <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is an exploration of, again, genuine toxic masculinity when you don't really are allowed to healthily express your feelings and form like mm-hmm. communicable relationships with other people that is just based on like empathy and you know just being honest about what you are feeling with other people rather than trying to enforce your power over other people to get what you want mm-hmm. or to get them to listen to you. And another, I guess, critical point I would bring up in all of this, because all of that, every bit of that is accurate. And part of what shapes that is that, like, I think an important comparison point would be Dragon Ball, right? Another formative shonen work. One of the few things more popular than Fist of the North Star is Dragon Ball. (laughs) But Dragon Ball is more popular than basically, you know, 99% of uh, things created by human beings. So it's not really a a knock against Fist of the North Star. But these are basically parallel works in the mid-80s. Uh, that are both sort of helping form a lot of what's going to come after. And whereas like Dragon Ball is, you know, very much taking from gag manga, right? And and the sort of comedy aspect and kind of trying to keep a straight face long enough to do a tournament. Fist of the North Star is, and obviously Dragon Ball centers a child primarily and children. Fist of the North Star is coming from Gekiga and is centering adults. And so the primary motivating factor is not really like achievement so much as it is regret. I mean, obviously achievement is a a key part of all the brothers of the North Star, but like this is all about adults and the regrets they've made in life. And the older you get, the more you can uh, appreciate that kind of theme, right? The older you're like, oh my gosh, what have I been doing with my life? Or, oh, I wish I hadn't done this. All the, everyone in this manga is, the world is quite literally a blasted wasteland. All that's left is to reflect on what's been lost um, as they battle it out with one another. And like, especially if you think it's just another show, like, oh, it's going to be some young kid, Kenshiro, learning his way in the martial arts world. Like, no, he pretty much emerges to us chapter one a fully formed hero, his backstory written, like this is the end game, right? Like this is the finale of his life. And obviously we're going to revisit it through flashbacks and stuff. And as he meets more characters, but like, you know, it's really about the, the, the pain that's been caused between all these characters and their histories with one another. And like, again, as an adult, oh, absolutely, who is often sad, it's pretty, it's pretty compelling stuff, I think. <laughs> So um, I'm just going to put it out there, and I hope regular listeners of our show aren't going to eye roll at this too much. Uh, but every everything you just said about Fist of the North Star, Grant, I think is the reason why I love Gintama so much. <laughs> Absolutely. Gintama is also about really sad adults. And like the older you get, the more you're like, nah, I get it, Gintoki, man. You just want to sit there and read Jump and pick your nose. Man, I feel you, dude. I feel you. I also cannot pay rent sometimes, man. I get it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's interesting that both of those are jump series where they're like, hello, yes, 13-year-old boy, would you like to read this thing about older men who are regretting their entire lives? (laughs) Like, Yeah. I think that, that that's an extremely important point because this this ran in a magazine targeted to elementary school kids. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, this hyper violent comic is like, here, eight year old, enjoy. But you know, it's <laughs> it's funny to think about because it seems unthinkable now. But like, you know, a lot of the stuff that this is pulling from, you know, obviously 
80s action movies are a big influence too. you know Kenshiro gets the the cobra shades later on and that sort of thing um and Mad Max and all that but like as a kid at a pretty young age I was allowed to watch action movies Mm. because my parents believed it would make a man out of me we're like well of course he can watch manly stuff I mean jokes on them because look at look at me now a big soft crybaby weeb but you know the the belief was like well it's maybe it's not appropriate for him but it's action movie stuff. It'll teach him to be a man, right? So it's it's maybe not that much of a stretch, oh, I guess. Oh, God. <laughs> this whole conversation about, like, regret and all this stuff is kind of killing me because there's a section in the end where Kenshiro himself has to face the consequences mm-hmm. of his own mm-hmm. violent actions, and it's... Uh, so good. Oh, I want to talk about yeah. it so bad. So then, <laughs> I guess we'll just have to come back, won't uh, we? It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was gonna say nick it's okay you only have to wait four more years <laughs> yeah <laughs> i've waited this long <laughs> oh man um yeah you know like uh speaking of like comparisons to other things like you know i i, I was like just kind of thinking before coming on the show today like uh you know because it I, I i feel like the landscape of like like especially shonen jump right really feels like it's still, you know, uh, it, it still really, like, cribs certain, like, aspects and qualities from stuff like, uh, you know, like, One Piece and Dragon Ball still, because those are both, like, some of its popular, uh, most popular titles ever. Um, but I, I was, I mean, it, and obviously you guys can kind of weigh in on this, but I genuinely wonder, like, how much, like, a jump manga today really, like, kind of cribs from Fist of the North Star in particular. Because I feel like when Fist of the North Star was running, like... It, it, it kind of comes from a time in Jump's history when, like, you know, uh, a lot of manga artists were pulling, like, uh, inspiration from things like uh, 70s action movie heroes or whatever, like, pe- like with people like Sylvester Stallone and stuff like that. Um, and that's you, – you, you can see that in not just like this, but in stuff like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure and, you know, Otoko Juku and, you know, a lot of stuff like that. A lot of uh, – it's, it's just really interesting to, like, think about the trends from, like, the early – uh, late 80s and whatnot and like what was kind of like uh what was kind of like the popular aesthetic with jump manga at the time whereas like i feel like now that's kind of really like uh, i feel like that's not really the trend anymore i don't know it's just it's just kind of interesting to think about like how much fist of the north star influence is there in like jump manga today i don't know it's constant never ending i mean it, it, chainsaw it, it, man alone yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Chainsaw Man, just like looking at the layouts, because I had been rereading it just before I got my copy of Fist of the North Star, and I'm just like looking at it, and I'm like, you can see in some of the panel layouts from that, the direct descendants from the panel layouts in Fist of the North Star, like the uh, motion of the uh, gore violence stuff. Okay, that sounds really... um, that sounds really like not good use of English there, but do you know what I mean? I, I can kind of see it. Um, maybe it's just because I haven't read Fist of the North Star in a while, but I don't know. I like. I guess the next time I read both those, I'll have to kind of like pay attention. Well, I think Fist of the North Star just shaped a formative language for how manga artists like would then visualize how to depict these especially hyper violent action scenes involving martial arts moments. So, like, I think that you can trace 
influence the Fist of the North Star and Tetsuo Hara's art in a lot of modern series, be it Kaiju Number no. 8 or MHA or Mashal and Dead of Luck or what have you, like the way they depict actions, they depict the a flurry of punches and blood splatters and stuff like that. I have a hot take that's going to make the entirety of Twitter block. Oh, do it, do it, do it. Oh my. Do it. I'm ready. That the um, Kenshiro as a character... His defining trait is kindness and empathy for the people you fight. And without that, we would not have Demon Slayer. Yeah, mm, I mean, I think that is... That. I think that's very okay. true. I think that's... That it's Demon Slayer is an example of a direct outgrowth of having empathy for the people who have hurt you in shonen manga. And I think this the North Star was one of the first that actually made that into a big trait. Obviously, JoJo went on to do that, but well... Mm. No, absolutely. I... <laughs> JoJo Phantom Blood is... It's it's Fist of the North Star 2, basically. Yeah. <laughs> I say this as the biggest JoJo fan in the world. I get to say that. I flew to Italy just to meet a rock. <laughs> <laughs> you have a special privilege. Uh, no, but yeah, JoJo is like a Fist of the North Star uh, took place in uh, uh, old-timey Victorian London. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's important to note the Fist of the North Star in Japan isn't just like popular. Mm-hmm. It's like a cultural hallmark. Mm-hmm. Oh, for like, sure. Yeah. E- even even 35 years, 35 plus years later, it's still everywhere over there. And you like when when talking with basically anyone, you know, you bring it up and they it's it's a great icebreaker. I mean, I'm I'm going to be real about that. But on top of that, it's a comic that happened in the right place at the right time because it's like at the center of this whole like biker gang and school thug movement that that ran through the 70s and 80s, which is where Otokojuku comes from as well. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's like, you know, this was the audience at the time was were all these like posers who were trying to act hard and carry weapons (laughs) but it was more about looks than anything but and you know there's a lot of biker gang action that happens in fist of the north star so it's it's kind of like it was inserting itself into this conversation around things that became pretty major social problems in japan and it just it was there and it ingrained itself so well in the collective consciousness that it's never left um, primarily left, never left pachinko parlors, but that's <laughs> something else. <laughs> Where I too hope to go when I die. Um, no, yeah, echoing all of the above there, um, I guess I would say, again, kind of writing off what's been said, that it's the, the influence and the continuing kind of waves are so uh, ingrained, I guess, in the DNA now that it's all over the place. Like in terms of direct visual, like not only visuals, like even in terms of paneling, like Diane was saying, but like in terms of like the look of Kenshiro as this iconic figure who himself is a mashup of what were then hip references, you know, Kentaro Mira's guts is like quite literally Kenshiro with a blanket around him, right? Like, oh my gosh, it's, like yeah. it's like, oh, hi, Kenshiro, how you doing? And Kentaro Mira's work, I mean, I mean, again, rest in peace, we're, we've quite tragically lost him recently, but, and you saw on that outpouring how much that work affected everybody, a work that is also about grief and getting over the horrible things that have happened to you. But its visual language was one of unbelievably intense detail and a fully realized just kind of visual world that simply struggled and almost could not be replicated in motion across multiple adaptations. 
who wrote the book on that? Fist of the North Star, right? I mean, if, it, uh, and I, I, I talked about this a couple times before, like, you know, Toriyama's work also on Dragon Ball is incredible. But I think the thing with Toriyama is you look at his work and it it, it kind of makes you think, hey, the, I bet I could draw that. It look It's so refined. It looks simple and it's not. But when you look at like Tetsuo Ohara's work in Fist of the North Star, or when you look at his kind of direct descendants oh. like Kentaro Mira's, like you look at to Fist of the North Star, you look at that and you go, yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> like, it, it, yeah. it, 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 I have it, words <laughs> to say about the quality of this artwork. And just, I do a lot of sewing and there's just this one, pa- this one cover of the chapter page where I could tell you exactly how thick the leather on Kenshiro's jacket is because it is rendered in such a way that I can feel the texture underneath mm-hmm. my skin just mm-hmm. looking what page? at it. Yeah. The brush um gosh, uh let me Okay, well let me while you're looking for that, so there's like direct visuals there, but there's also just the simple fact that like uh many of the say the Wuxia writers of the fifties and sixties, like Jin Yong and so forth, who are codifying long existing sort of narrative tropes and in the 20th century and sort of mass market form in novels, you know, you're taking, I mean, Fist of the North Star, again, like Dragon Ball, is taking a rich Chinese literary history and packaging it in serialized comic form, taking these characters who, you know, what's the standard shonen formula? This this young warrior or something who has to learn these new skills and might gain new forms or new abilities and is constantly, you know, increasing their power and ability. Like that's that's Wuxia, that's Zhangjia, that's this th- these literary traditions of these martial warriors. And Fist of the North Star is drawing quite directly from that, right? Just like Jin Yong wrote about, you know, we have like the, the Shaolin versus the Wu-Tang, right? These two opposing schools and styles uh, who, who are oppositional to one another. This is kind of like a popular trope, right? And you have that here with the, the North and the South Star opposing each other. And you can see it even in something like, say, One Piece. Again, still one of the most popular things on the planet right now, which is obviously very clearly an inheritor of Dragon Ball. There's so much of Dragon Ball in One Piece, and Oda has said himself many times, he Oda knows more about Dragon Ball than Toriyama does, because Toriyama doesn't care. But if you look at what is what is the current arc right now in One Piece, it's Wano. And yes, Wano is a feudal Japanese setting, but its backdrop is blasted apocalyptic wastelands, smoke-spewing factories, all these leather-clad biker warriors like Queen and King. I mean, Queen, oh gosh, yeah. if you if Queen, Queen yeah. if you look at Queen, <laughs> Queen is just, I mean, okay, Queen can turn into a brontosaurus who smokes a cigar, so that's not a thing in Fist of the North Star. But Queen is very clearly a reference to a character like Hart, this really large uh, leather-clad warrior who no one can seem to defeat, right? Like, so, it, the influences are, there are, they're so pervasive and they're so integral to what has become the quote-unquote generic you know shonen series that you almost can't even tell like it, it almost gets to the point where is it even a reference anymore it's so it's so cooked into what has become the one of the most popular uh storytelling forms on the planet that you almost it's hard to even know when is it influence and when is it just like it's it's just it's just part of it right it's in the air part of the dna i found the page it's chapter six the uh chapter six uh cover page the ink work on the hair and just the uh cross hatching for the leather it is one of the most beautiful things i've ever seen done in manga and yeah for a right weekly, oh my god yeah <laughs> and for a weekly done by a creator doing at the beginning of his career comparatively like that's the sort of stuff you would normally expect to see from people who have been doing manga 
all the time for like a decade or 20 decades. I don't know. <laughs> I, I can only imagine like the hell that Tetsuo Hara went through uh, literally working on the series for its whole run for p- possibly few to no breaks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, especially just looking at this cover page, like, God, that's a that's a sexy man. Like, just, yeah. I, just I, I can't take my eyes off him. I'm going to fall for him. Uh, but yeah, I mean, um, I don't know if you guys have uh, read this or not. Maybe I'll link this in the chat. But uh, Viz linked to a, uh, a like a Forbes article about Fist of the North Star and like uh, its creation. And I thought it was really interesting. Uh, and maybe we'll also link it in the show notes. Uh, I thought it was an interesting read, just kind of like uh, finding out about Tetsuo Hara's start as an artist and like what he was influenced by. And I think one of the artists he mentioned in particular was uh, Ryoichi Ikigami. Ooh, yeah, I can see that. I can entirely see that. Admittedly, I haven't read any of his works. I, I know I need to fix that at some point. But I, I, I know his art style well enough to where, like, when I revisit the North Star now, like, now, now I can't unsee it, you know? Like, it's just, it's all over the place. Yeah, another very hyper-detailed, to-the-point-of-photorealistic artist. Yeah. So it's it's interesting with with Tetsuo Hara being a disciple of of Ikigami. Ikigami was heavily influenced by some of the big time American comic mm-hmm. authors in the seventies, mm-hmm. particularly Neil Adams. Uh, yeah, I was gonna, yep. So the so there's this interesting kind of cross pollination between uh, between styles from American comics and Japanese comics through Ikigami and Hara, mm-hmm. but to the point that like Fist of the North Star. I, I, have any of you watched the OVA series from the early 2000s? I think I watched it like a long time. I think I actually literally rented it from Blockbuster when that was still around. <laughs> I have no idea. It's been long enough that like since I saw it that maybe I saw it. Maybe I just looked at the cover. Who the heck knows <laughs> I actually anymore. might have watched that before I read Fist of the North Star, actually, now that I think about it. Well, I, I want to specifically bring up the first OVA where... Uh, Kenshiro kills Gact, um, which is excellent. But uh, <laughs> but um, like the the whole storyline about that is, you know, he comes to this town that's being starved for water, but has this deep, rich underwater un- underwater reserve. And then a number of years later, here comes Fury Road with a very similar similar concept mm. oh i would just straight up say at this point that if you liked fury road you'd probably like fist of the north star oh yeah it's just yeah. how it is yeah i mean if you like maddox in general mm-hmm. absolutely it's interesting that the series that wholesale ripped off mad max in a lot of ways in a good way like then maybe influenced a Mad Max story a number of years later. Like, mm-hmm. it's, this, it's this really cool cross-conversation that Fist of the North Star has in a lot of different directions. It's, I love it. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I just say that, like, not only do I consider Fist of the North Star to be, as well as being a good manga in its own right, something that you genuinely sh- need to read if you want to understand the history of manga, I'd also say that it's something that's worth reading if you want to understand the history of comics, like, worldwide. I mentioned that I went to Italy to see Rocky, which, good lord, there was, like, Fist of the North Star art everywhere, and I wound up at a concert where everybody was singing Ayotori <laughs> Nice. It's incredible. Oh, my God. It's everywhere. 
all around the world, people read it, and some of the uh, visual language that it pioneered has worked its way into just comics worldwide. Like like everyone was saying, you get stuff that's written now where people don't even realize that what they're doing is Fist of the North Star inspired because they're being inspired by this, which was inspired by that, and you go back like six generations of inspiration until there's Kenshiro. Stick with me on this and let me know if like it, it sounds wrong or you guys disagree, but like... I'm I'm leaning closer and closer to putting Fist of the North Star in that category, same category of manga, say like maybe Ashton of Joe, specifically in the sense of like it's it's one of these like one of these really legendary manga that's like so influential that like uh, parts of it have been referenced in other anime and manga before to the point where like it's kind of transcended a reference and it's just kind of a part of the fabric of anime and manga. Like, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I agree. No question. Specifically like, you know, the, the, the big death scene, you know, at the end of Ashinojo, you know, that that's been referenced everywhere to the point where like, I think that's the thing that like anybody knows from Ashinojo, even if they never read it. And, I think the thing that you could say is like that for Fist of the North Star is like you are already dead. Mm-hmm. That that and like I feel like since Fist of the North Star and its inception, like I feel I I can't I can't say there haven't been too many anime where I don't see some kind of like Mad Max looking biker goon appear at some point. Like that's you know, yeah. it's always in there on all, in most kind of actiony yeah. series. It's always referenced at some point. It's worth noting that Ken Shiro says you're already you're already dead only once in the comic, <laughs> only yeah. once. Yeah. <laughs> oh wow, that's that's amazing. I mean, that's how legendary the moment is. It sticks out in your head, and then makes your head stick out in just a gruesome way. Just <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it makes it makes your head bubble like hot sticky gum on a summer day. <laughs> um. I would also, I guess, add to, to what's been said here. Uh, it is important to read for his, for manga's history's sake, for the the history like of comics and anime. Like it, as a historical note, like if you care about where things come from and want to see those influences, you need to read it. I also think there's an element like uh, maybe a comparison might be something like Super Robots. Like I think a lot of people know, oh, like Mazinger. That's like an old Super Robot thing, and Go Nagai made that, and like all these other Super Robot shows come after that. So like, and they assume like, well. I know all these derivative works and I know that all those super robot shows are like really repetitive, right? It's like monster of the week thing. So I bet Mazinger was really repetitive and I, I probably don't need to watch it. Right. You just, they just kind of, uh, they make these assumptions, no. but if you've like, if you've actually read Mazinger, like it's written by Go Nagai, like it'll blow your mind. Like that guy, <laughs> that guy has, you know, there's no brakes on that train. Um, and every moment is like completely flipping your expectations. And so it's worth reading, like in its own right, it's important to read, not just for history, but like, and I think the same thing is true here. Like for history's sake, it's so important. But like, if you think you know what's going to happen in Fist of the North Star and you've never engaged with it, like you are going to be surprised. Like it is going to be like, whoa, like I've never seen anything like this. It is genuinely good in mm-hmm. its own right. And I like enough old stuff where you have to kind of just view it as an old thing to enjoy it. Like, I understand that not everybody is into that, but Fist of the North Star, if I came across it now, I'd go, ooh, retro art, but no, I would still enjoy the heck out of this series if someone presented it to me now, today, and I'd never read a single page. It is 
such a mm-hmm. good series. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was actually just about to ask you guys, like, you know, uh, I mean, it's, maybe it's a dumb question because obviously someone at Viz thought it was worth bringing back into America for a third time at this point. But I mean, yeah, I guess you guys probably already answered my question, but I was wondering, like, how much do you think modern manga readers will get out of Fist of the North Star, despite like how old it is at this point? They better get a lot out of it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's... <laughs> It's, We're not asking this guy. Reason, why not? Like some, all this stuff is still impressive to this day. All of Hara's art is just mind blowing, literally yeah. and figuratively. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> the art the, is just incredible. Like the fidelity, the detail of it, and uh, the hyper violence. There's still nothing quite like it. Even if you read JoJo's, there's still insane stuff here that's gonna blow you in. That's gonna really be impressive. Yeah. To you. At the same time that I said that JoJo cribs so heavily that it might almost be considered cheating at places if you liked phantom blood you'll like this this was phantom blood took from this and in a lot of places did it better oh my god i'm so sorry i can't believe i said that but it's actually kind of true a million years ago someone sent me a uh, a breakdown of all the different jojo arcs as movie posters and the one for Phantom Blood was just Ken Shiro with like vampires and Jane Austen. <laughs> right, yeah. It's, it's true. true though. Oh, speaking of Fist of the North Star movies, I feel like if I do not bring this up at some point during this episode, I am doing the world a disservice. Don't watch the live action movie. It's not even funny bad. It's just bad bad. <laughs> if you see that and you're like, oh, this would be a fun way to experience yeah, the series. No. Agree to disagree. Uh, but 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 see oh. but see now now I I kind of want to save that for like a possible podcast in the future. If we, you know, when we do, when we do get around to like covering all of Fist of the North Star, that's going to be a bonus thing we do. I can promise that. If you don't enjoy like trauma level or worse level movies, you will not <laughs> get anything out of watching that live action movie. Oh man. Also, if you get, if you're too interested in Fist of the North Star and then you just get angry about what the hell did they do to Jaggy, that is not how Jaggy acts. What is wrong with you? What did they do to Jaggy is wow. like, a, that's across the board, you get right? Jaggy, <laughs> poor Jaggy. Oh, <laughs> poor Jaggy. No, yeah, I, I definitely just say, just read it. You just, you just need to read it, watch it, something like it's, and I, I hope modern, I think if modern manga fans pick it up, and give it a shot. I think they will be impressed by it. I don't. I don't know how you couldn't be. Like it's. I've read it. Th- <laughs> I did that when I did the review for ANN. I read the digital copy. You know, for the pre-screener, I was like, man, this is so good. I read this when it showed up. And my my heart. The actual physical copy. I'm probably going to read it again. Like I've already read this. <laughs> this is not even my favorite part of the manga. And I'm like, God, this is so good. Oh, I got it explodes. <laughs> this is great. You know. It is. It is still so good. It's so good. It's so good. And watching, I think my favorite thing in this first volume, if we can speak to it specifically, is like the way Hara's art, which starts out really strong, but just only gets better. Like watching Kenshiro develop from quite literally, hey, Bruce Lee, will you try on this Mad Max costume we had behind set to (laughs) this sort of like, he never stops looking like that, but he starts to become Kenshiro. Like by the time you get to the Shin fight and he's just like that, he's got the smoldering anime hair and just the, just the super sad boy, you know, uh, uh, that glower, that brooding power. Like when he becomes, like he literally kind of fills into himself and then bursts out of his shirt. Like it's just, like you're just like watching a like a, a a legendary figure like emerge right like like a like a statue from marble yes. and it's like and you can feel it you can feel the intensity on the page and the heat coming off these panels 
it, you, I don't see how you couldn't get something from it. Like if you, I don't know how you could read, like, I don't know how My Hero Academia, which again is great and I love that too, but like, I don't know how that can be one of the most popular things on the planet and not have modern fans still find something enjoyable here because it's incredible, right? It's the same. It's, it's punch mans and blood. Like it's, it's funny. It's awesome. It's, it's got this rich pathos. It looks terrific. Like, I don't know what's not to love. I'd be really surprised if somebody said, well, I do like violent fighting manga, but fist of the North star just didn't do it for me. I would truly, <laughs> I want to like, no. I want to have a conversation with that person. Like you got to tell me more. Like what's going on? <laughs> no no yeah uh, I love every full page spread of Kenshiro in this book and there are a lot of them a lot of just Kenshiro just filled with purpose we just see him like a full page just depicting him walking towards his foe just with you know just an intensity that's just always so radiant and awesome oh my god I mean Kenshiro as a main character has always been super great and I, I like he's so nice He's like, such a nice punch guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that goes to the other pillar of the themes of the series. Like, we talked that, you know, one aspect of the series is that it's, it's a series about regrets. But kind of on the other side of adulthood is, you know, it's also about responsibility. And Kenshiro owns up to that responsibility he has to wield the power he has to protect people in need and to help people in need. And he does not think twice about helping people who are in need of help. Like in the second chapter, he just, when I was second taught, he goes to help that old man who is being attacked by the bandits. And he, without a second thought, he's like, no, I'm going to carry this guy and his seeds together to his village. I'm going to get him home safely and alive. You know, he is just unquestionably compassionate, kind, caring. He knows that he has been gifted with a great strength and he's going to use it to help people. And that's what makes him a great contrast to old antagonists in the series who are motivated by cruelty and by showing their power and by lording it over others and inflicting pain on others. Kenshiro lives the with great power comes great responsibility and that's really great of him Mm -hmm. (laughs) absolutely he really brings out the best in basically everyone with a few exceptions you know he encounters all these people who more often than not start out as villains and after encountering kenshiro they see the light and they're like oh no i have to do good now like i've been using my powers the wrong way and he allows them to kind of see the light with his fists and it's just, it's incredible to, to see all the way through. Like I said, there are a few exceptions, but, you know, for the most part, it's, he's just a force for good. And I've seen him described as chaotic, chaotic good, and I disagree. He is 100% lawful good. Oh, yeah, like, for sure. He, he abides by a code, and he follows that code without hesitation. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. We only get like a like the start of it at the end of this volume, but I I love that Kenshiro is the kind of guy who will like basically take down and kill every member of a military mm-hmm. state just for like one little girl. Yeah, and it's not that he revels or takes pleasure in killing, but he just if these people are unabashed and unrepentant about the pain they're causing, like he's going to take them down. And what's great about like a lot of the villain deaths and defeats in the series is that they're always like pretty karmic and ironic, Mm -hmm. a reflection of the pain that they inflicted on others. Like the guy in this volume who like decapitates 
a dude in front of his daughter with wire like Kenshiro basically does the same thing to him. That was brutal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to add something that you just touched on something really critical because like I do think Kenshiro is inherently a hero and heroic and what defines him is that he has a moral code that goes beyond strength and it's kind of rooted in tragic sadness and all that. But I also think it's like I don't know if I would characterize him as like and he is the savior of the end of the century, but he doesn't necessarily He's not always swooping in to save the day. A lot there are a lot of times when he arrives on the scene. The anime does this a lot too, where like the, the like if you're thinking he's going to swoop in and save everybody before bad things happen to them, that's not really what he's doing. He has a pretty methodical pace, and I think if you understand him from from the perspective of the villains, right, he's basically a horror movie monster. They are the teenagers who are getting into shenanigans <laughs> and then get their ironic comeuppance at the hands of this sort of vengeful angel because that's really what Kenshiro is he's his tragedy has already happened and he does save people and help people but he's also there to meet out kind of righteous punishment and it is like the tension isn't will Kenshiro win yes the tension is how will this horrible person who is actively harming other people how will their justice be meted out at Kenshiro's hands they don't really have it like the average goon that he fights the bosses and so forth like they don't have a chance they can't challenge him so the it's not like oh will he win this time like of course he's going to win it's the invincible fist of the north star Kenshiro is is bulletproof but he will destroy them and it will be cool and ironic and hilarious <laughs> mm. yeah it's cathartic yeah, it's really cathartic. Inflict pain on others, you know, get their justice, get their just desserts. Yeah, but he's and he's not like running. He's not like, oh, I have to save them. But he's like, he's just walking across the wasteland, and if he sees injustice, he meets out punishment. And it's like, I feel like to the original child readers of this series, it might have been almost something of an anti-bullying fantasy. Yeah, for sure, I could see that. Yeah, like. The people who've hurt you having to face the consequences of what they did to hurt other people. I could see it very much feeling like that if you were a kid reading this and therefore some of the uh, themes of regret aren't going to hit quite as strongly. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I, I, I could see that. Um, sorry, I was going to make a really stupid joke and I was just going to say it's it's kind of like if Michael Myers had like magical martial arts powers. And a lot of times it is. Like, it's that <laughs> level of gruesome. It's just like in a horror movie, sometimes the deaths are like, oh, oh, I don't want to watch that. It's body horror and like really disgusting. And sometimes it's just funny, right? Like, and it's meant to be funny. <laughs> like, I mean, you can see in interviews and stuff, Tetsuo Haram Bronson talking about like trying to come up with funny things to, that characters would say, you know, not like these iconic last words, but just like funny noises. Like, he did as they explode in a column of blood like it's it's yeah. funny it's meant to be like oh my god that guy's head just exploded did you see that like that's that's the intended effect <laughs> sometimes i kind of like the more understated sort of death blows where like i think there's a moment in this volume where like kenshiro just kind of like karate chops a dude's head and he just leaves a dent <laughs> in the middle of his head <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was good. Yeah, that, that yeah. made me chuckle. A it's lot. meant it to like, good. and it's meant to be funny. It's a, it's so absurd. It's meant to be hilarious, and it is. I think it's a really funny manga at times. <laughs> no, it's it's so good. There's something for basically everybody, provided you can handle how gruesome the gore can get, and it is pretty gruesome. 
Yeah, I mean, if we haven't already made it clear, and, you know, if you haven't read Fist of the North Star or thinking about getting into it, just know there's a lot of gray matter in the <laughs> series at points, so if you're not a fan of that. Yeah, now you see Exposed Brain. The blood on the cover is not like that. This is just the start, is what I'll say. It's just a couple of drops. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I want to use that as a transition real quick, and uh, I guess we could talk about this a little bit. What do we think about just this release in general? Like, wh what do we think about the quality of this release? Because I think it's a pretty good release for what we're getting. I think it's beautiful. Like, when I saw the uh, the uh, wait, the creative use of gloss mm. on the cover, mm. I was just, mm -hmm. like, screaming. Oh, my God. <laughs> L literally, like, a few hours before we got on, I was kind of, like, uh, reading through it. Or whatever, um, I, I didn't even notice like the, uh, the like the constellation or whatever on yeah. the logo. Mm -hmm. If you kind of like positioned it just right, and I was like, oh, that's there. That's a really cool mm -hmm. detail. And like, uh, and also like Grant kind of mentioned like the blood splatter on like the spine of the book. Like some of these details are really great. I also am so grateful to get to see the uh, origin, not just the original color pages, but the original black and white and orange pages because for some reason a lot of old jump manga had those and i have yet to ever see a case where those don't look like absolute <laughs> ass in black and white yeah yeah half color pages oh the the those pages looked really muddy in the original ver in the original viz release they were bad they look bad in every in every black and white release i don't think you can fix that it just looks so muddy when you grayscale it to black and white. But yeah, they the, these pages are just so high quality in this book. The art so shines. Beautiful size. Beautiful paper quality. I can tell just touching Absolutely. it. Oh, yeah. The binding is going to stand up to a lot of wear, which is quite useful for my <laughs> needs. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I guess, um, I guess while we're talking about the, I mean, obviously, I, I think we could all agree this is a very high quality release, and we're really thankful for the work that like Viz is putting into just this release in general. Um, and I don't know if any of us want to talk about this at least for a little bit, but I mean, how do we feel about like, I guess, the translation and the lettering? I don't know if any of us have any thoughts on those. We want to get out there, or I have a few. <laughs> here, here, go ahead, Diana. I think that while I can respect, or the first thing I will say is that the choice of typeface for the dialogue, I am a massive fan of. It is so easy to read and comfortable to the eyes yeah, and yeah. doesn't detract from the art whatsoever. I would like to see this in a lot more series from multiple publishers. That is just one of the best manga dialogue typefaces. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. It does feel one. like it fits. But- I did find in a lot of cases that the um, redrawn special effects in some scenes felt really jarring. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. In some places, it felt like it was detracting from the art. Like it's stuck on top instead of blending in like it did in the original Japanese release. I don't mean to say that this is not worth picking up because some of the uh, special effects feel a little intrusive special like sound effects, because some of the sound effects feel a bit intrusive, but I did find that intrusive in several scenes, and I wish they weren't 
quite like that sometimes. Yeah, this is a consequence of the letterer trying to manipulate the letters of the sound effects in a way that like covers up the original Japanese text, like tries to match the shape of the Japanese text with the English letters in a way that doesn't always feel natural and often kind of distorts the letters to the point where sometimes you can't tell what they're supposed to be and are unrecognizable. I know <laughs> Ray Lord and I had a big conversation in the beta about like one sound effect that was had a very weird looking it was either an N in the sound effect of Zwip or Nwip. And it was either an N because the the edges, the corners were like rounded or it was a, supposed to be a Z and we couldn't tell what it was because it was so <laughs> awkwardly drawn. And uh, this is a consequence of this particular letter style, John Hunt. And, you know, we had a big complaint about some of the lettering he did in uh, Demon Slayer too. Um, but yeah, like it does stand out. And I know a lot of people uh, who did complain that they didn't really care for like how some of these uh, effects were rendered. And yeah, it does not necessarily blend in with Hara's art the most naturally. Well, part of the problem is that Hara's art, the, the way Hara integrates sound effects, it's like built right into the, to a lot of the artwork. So in order to, in order to remove that or translate it, it means changing a fundamental element of a panel or of a page. It's a, a lot of the ways, I mean, Yusuke Murata is, is, kind of an extreme example of this but it's like you you have to be really careful about what you change and how you change it but at the same time a lot of the big sound effects on on some of these pages and the japanese editions they're like they're dynamic they jump out uh, jump out of the page and it looks like there's an attempt to do to replicate that in some ways but it just it doesn't quite get there yeah because it is it's like trying to match the shape of the Japanese effects, but you know, it because they have to distort the the shape of those. Like it just doesn't have the same impact sometimes in these cases. And also, uh, yeah, like it does oftentimes look awkward. And I can understand like their hesitation to like cover up or have to redraw parts of the artwork, but that does lead to situations again where you have like words being really scrunched in in these effects or separated in a weird way or just these distorted shapes for the letters and it doesn't necessarily look the best Mm -hmm. i mean honestly i think that's kind of my biggest complaint about this release like otherwise i think this is a real top-notch release and i'm pretty happy with it personally but and i mean this is just me but like honestly with these like older more revered classic titles Sometimes I kind of wish they would just kind of keep the sound yeah, effects alone. Right. I, I I know that's Viz's thing to like redraw the sound effects, and most of the time they do a really good job, actually. Um, yeah, like I I think I saw someone tweeting a few days ago about like the work they're putting into Chainsaw Man in particular. Those are fucking amazing, quite honestly. Oh my god, yes. Um, and they like whoever's on those. I don't know off the top of my head, but like they do such a great job with that series in particular, and. I don't know. I, I feel like for Fist of the North Star, I would have I would have preferred personally they just leave the sound effects alone, but that's just me. 
I mean, in terms of the release itself, I, I share everybody else's squibbles. I personally was not that impacted by the sound effects as much. I was so engrossed by just having it. Like, I was just so over the moon <laughs> that my first read, it didn't That's even fair, occur yeah. to me. I was just like, <gasps> you know, like... I, yeah, the, like, it's, it's a small complaint. Yeah, it's like, 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 the, the book in like Zoidberg, I, I really would have settled for a hard roll with ketchup inside. Like, I would have just taken <laughs> any release. Uh, but I'm just so glad that yeah. they gave us such a a really a rich release with such a uh, the tra- I think the translation is really good. I don't I don't know uh, any Japanese, so I really can't comment. But like reading the old scanlations and stuff, sometimes it was like this is a little rough. Same, yeah. But like this, just it flows and it 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 gets across the the impact I think of what the series is supposed to be. And so I I think it's a terrific release inside and out. And I, although I do share everyone's um, issues with the sound effects, but my personal read, I just I barely noticed. I was just going. <laughs> One thing that I really did enjoy is that I had seen a lot of people being, like, really worried about, are they going to just straight up translate the iconic attack names? Are they going to leave them in Japanese, but then you won't know what they are? And the fact that they decided to split the difference and have the iconic attack name just directly transliterated, followed by what it means, I think that was the correct choice, and I am glad that they made it. 100%. 100%. No, I agree. And in some places, it's just kind of a bummer. Like, I, I think that I do agree that that was the right choice. But when he busts those out in, in the Japanese editions, it's this, like, big block text moment, you know. But, you know, that works a lot better in Japanese than it does in English. So, like, how do you how do you do that? I, so I think their their solution was the right one. But, yeah, I mean, I'm glad that, like, all across the board that – we're as happy with the release as we are. Um, and I, I think, uh, aside from one or two things about it, like I, I do think it's getting the treatment that it deserves, and I'm really looking forward to Absolutely. like owning the rest of this mm. eventually. But I guess uh, I, I think we're, I know we're kind of running a little long here, but I mean, uh, is there anything else that we want to talk about before we maybe get into questions from our audience? I just want to say that if you have some kind of impression in your head about what this series is like, and you're pretty sure that it's not for you, unless the issue is, I think it's going to be too violent for me, I encourage you to try it. It's probably not what you're thinking it is, but in a good way. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, my, my thing is like, you know, we don't want to like understate how important Fist of the North Star is, but I also, I also don't want to accidentally come off like, Okay, fellow manga reader, here's your homework. You got to read, no. you know, the classics that you might not be into or whatever. But like, I think Fist of the North Star is still like legitimately really good. Like when when I was reading through this volume, like, you know, it's not as um a lot of the nuance, like it's there, but it's not as present as it will be later, especially with its like emotional maturity and like how thoughtful it is about, you know, certain things, but like it's there and like honestly, I was really impressed with like how sucked in I got into it immediately. Like it's th- this first volume, I th- I think is legitimately like really good. Even if we feel like oh well, the good stuff that's even better is like still coming. But I think this is still like really good on its own. Yeah, it's it's not action for action's sake. It there is heart and soul to it. Yeah, like there is a team of compassion and empathy to it, and protecting others with the power you have. So, like, it's a very compelling story that still holds up, that still has such a ton of value today, still. Like, I think it has endured as a classic over the decades for a very good reason. 
And I think that even if you like have gravitated towards more modern series, I think that this is a series that you read, you are so going to be blown away and impressed by it. Like as far as art, like again, it, it holds up so well, his line work, his designs, just it might be a style that is of the past, but like the actual art itself is still today is just incredibly impressive. Like, and it's as a comic, it just breezes so easily. Like, it's just such a great read. The layouts are so incredible. It really sucks you into the pace of it. Storytelling is really gripping. Like, there is just so much to enjoy. It just has so much to offer to you. If you're just a fan of a good action story in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I've read through the, like, I'm a slow reader, as listeners may know. Uh, I think I got through this in like 40-ish minutes. Yeah. Which I think is pretty pretty good for me specifically, but yeah. Yeah, you'll, bl- you'll blaze through it. <laughs> I am an incredibly fast reader, and it took me quite a while. That was because I was just staring <laughs> at the art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, the pacing is mm-hmm. lightning fast. Things happen. Mm. The only The only moments where things aren't going like breakneck is when the story is deliberately asking you to pause and think about what you just read. Yeah. And I think in this first one, you get a really compelling, complete story in the conflict between Kenshiro and Shin. And I think the series really puts a strong foot forward with that storyline. And so, like, if you are engrossed by that, then I think that you should absolutely keep reading. Because I think that is... A really great start and a really great primer, a taste of things that the series will develop and expand and just truly flesh out uh, in great ways as it continues on. And I, if I can add also uh, to, to all of that, I mean, we, and we, of course, we've talked a lot about Tetsuhara's art because how can you not? But I think there's something to be said for some of the, like as someone who is also a writer and a creator, I'm really impressed with what Baronson does not only here, but going forward, because the premise is very simple here. And it seems very restrictive, like the the core conflict, right? There's the, the There's only two main fighting styles here. There's only the North Star and the South Star. And... This, there's only one North Star guy. Like it's it's, it's just Kensho. There's only be one, right? Highlander rules. <laughs> um, and then you've got the South Star, and you know the the North Star is like, all right, you explode from within, and then the South Star is with the cutting and the kind of penetrating and stuff. And that seems very limited. I mean, it helps people feel special. Like Kensho feels special. He's the only one, right? But you know, there's not a lot to work with there in terms of variety. How do you keep that engaging? Um, well, then you start to get it and you start asking natural questions like, well, wait, well, if there's only one guy who can do the, the, the North Star style, like, what's it like teaching that? Like, if you've got a class of people, like, well, what happens if you can only one person can be that? Seems like there'd be some conflict and some drama there, right? Like, well, you there, you know, or like the South Star having so many different styles under it and the oppositional elements. And maybe as we see, as uh, you know, I think Nick brought up earlier with, you know, enemies coming over and becoming friends and stuff and the classic Shonen adventure trope, like, well, maybe they're not truly that opposition right maybe some of the enemies are those within your own school or you know and all this that that you have a history with and like watching such a simple premise develop and become richer and more complex without really ever breaking the core rules of the sort of dynamic between these two fighting styles is i think kind of a master class in writing especially because because of 
both interviews and we just know the kind of punishing schedule of manga, they're pretty much making this up as they're going along. And it's really, really impressive to watch such a simple core premise become this really complex, rich tapestry that the drama is textured on top of. And I, I just like, as a writer, I'm just like, that's brilliant. Like you make something feel special while still leaving yourself room to make it creative and engaging again and again and again and again and again. And on top of that, as was outlined in the Forbes interview, Tetsuo Hara said that he and Baronson barely never met face to face or communicated directly. They would just like pass scripts and pages between one another and just work, work like that. And the fact that they accomplished all of this, this like I, this masterpiece without that kind of, without any kind of major communication is just, they speak the language of, of creative expression. It's super cool. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I guess, um, before we head out here soon, um, Lum, do we want to start reading questions from our audience? Yes, we have a few questions from both Reddit and Twitter, and thank you guys for sending them in. First, here's just a comment from at LowMEnjoyer, who asks that he hopes that we talk about the scene in the film where a building falls in Ken's head and he just walks through it. <laughs> and there's a break between Justin walks, a multiple line break there for emphasis, to just hammer <laughs> on the impressiveness of that moment and indeed i watched the film yesterday and that's a amazing moment <laughs> just walks it, is. The building. it is great. he gets caked in just the concrete and just peels off of him and just powers through and walks through it's amazing i believe i have seen that bit like just on youtube or something and like it is pretty great um can i ask a question just on top of that because i I'm now kind of thinking about because uh, my roommates and I, you know, we have like movie nights and stuff. Would you guys recommend the Fist of the North Star movie to people who have never seen Fist of the North Star before? Yeah. Yes. The anime, the animated one. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a, just it's an encapsulation of just that first half of the series, and really, I think it boils it down and tells a really compelling story of like all the essential moments, and then also, uh, it really gets to the heart of the theme. Of the narrative in a really compelling way. I think it is a really well done adaptation of the story. I would say that it's it's a very heavily abridged overview of the beginning of the series to the soft ending of the series in volume 16. Um, that it, it kind of touches on a lot of important points, but there are some other points like really huge moments yeah and that... you're not getting the complete story but like if you just want to, the encapsulation is just like the the core idea of what fist of the north star is about and the message of the story of like again fighting for the future fighting to protect those who will carry on the future like i think it really explores that very well and uh you know i think as the choice of antagonists was very good obviously it can't have every character i can't to have every storyline arc, but I think it, it chooses what to adapt for its runtime very well and tells a compelling story with its material. On the movie, mine is very much yes with an asterisk. I hate to be a podcaster here, but <laughs> if you want my full thoughts on this, one of the earliest episodes we did on Blade Licking Thieves is very much this exact question. I was a Fist of the North Star true believer. I sit down with my two friends who only know it kind of in the ether. I talk about it at length. We watch it together and you can sort of hear in real time what it's like to sit on the couch with your friends who aren't 
maybe aren't a hundred percent diehards and showing them that movie. And that's kind of their only exposure to it and what happens. And I think you can see kind of the impacts there. I get my, here's my thing. I think the movie, the animated film is a terrific way to expose somebody to the series in a way that doesn't involve them reading either 15 or 20 releases or watching a hundred plus episodes. It is a condensed way to try to engage with the series However, you have to kind of prime them. And I like truthfully, even as someone who, you know, I watched it when I was a kid, I had no idea what was going on. And even now, like knowing the background, I'm like, wow, characters are just like teleporting to different scenes all of a sudden. Like we're 100 miles away now or like this is happening and this is truncated and this is, you know, like it's it's really weird how much gets cut. And yet, ironically, Jaggy gets about as much screen time as the movie as he does in the series. (laughs) Like it's almost like it's really weird. It's all over the place. But if you you show them movie because and especially and uh, you know i personally you know i enjoy all different types subs dubs whatever but if dubbing is a concern for some of your friends who might be on the fence there are dubs for that film so that can help um but really if you show them the film you kind of have to let them know like look you're not going to know what's going on but if you're watching this and you think the the exploding heads are cool and you would really like to know more about these characters and see more heads explode then let's go further but, you know, like, so I think it's a good sampler, but it condenses so much and it loses so much and it's kind of incomprehensible, really, like in terms of a plot. Like it honestly, unless you know, like unless you're coming in, like you're not going to know what's going on. You don't know who any of these people are. And then it has its own ending, which isn't really what happens. In, you know, so it's like it, it's, a, <laughs> it's a weird thing. Like it just ends. And so um, and I also, I, I, and specifically based off the comment, like I have a real mixed feeling about the movie too, because like on the one hand, I really enjoy how the manga and the anime present us like thematically. Kenshiro is invincible from the first moment you meet him. Like he is, you don't see the formation of the scars and everything with Yuri and Shin until later. Like he's presented to the audience as this unstoppable powerhouse who is on a path for vengeance. Whereas the film kind of starts with his origin and makes him feel almost more like a quote unquote traditional hero where he like goes through his strategy and then kind of grows over time. And that's fine because we get the incredible moment of him quite literally just rising from hell <laughs> and a skyscraper falls on him. And he's just like this again, force of vengeance. And so I love that, but I'm kind of mixed on him being a weak character to begin with. I like the presentation of him as invincible from the word go, because I think that's an important framing mechanism for so much of what's going to come after it. Like you need to see him as invincible, both for the enemies he's going to destroy and understand how powerful the opponents are that he can't immediately destroy. Like, wow, it does matter when someone can make Kenshiro not win in a single chapter or a single episode. Like they must be a powerful figure. Um, But I think the movie is, a good place like hey if you guys kind of dig this i think you'll dig more i think that's what it works as but it's it's hard to recommend it on its own and without sitting down next to somebody like i don't i don't know if i could do that it's it's a weird thing those are fair points i remember listening to that i was really surprised that you guys weren't as enthused on the movie as i thought you would be but you know i definitely could see like i feel like i really enjoyed the movie but and again, I know the story. I know how it's supposed to be. So, like, I can see this and I'm not lost because I, like, know what's supposed to be happening, what is happening. But, yeah, I, I can definitely see, yeah, how someone who is incomplete familiar would be lost, even though... It can be bewildering. Yeah. See, I'm just, like, I started watching anime at the time where it's like, yes, I will watch episode three, seven, and nine because oh, sure. that's what I could find. I, so, like, I got into Dragon Ball from the fourth to last episode of Dragon Ball GT. 
So, you know, and I watched Dragon Ball all out of order. I was watching Boo Saga stuff and Red Ribbon Army stuff at the same time. Like, but yeah, definitely, though, yeah, it's like maybe it'll work differently for everyone. I definitely feel like, if nothing else, you gotta be impressed with the animation in that movie because holy cow, oh, that is the definition of Sakuga. There's so many amazing scenes, like the the race ch- scene where Bat and Lin are like driving car to get away from some thieves, and we have all these incredible fluid shots with animated backgrounds as they're racing through the cityscape, and they <laughs> jump their car in through a building, and it's just insane, insane animation moments in the movie. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely taking notes. I'm still going to add this to my list of movies to show my friends now. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I mean, I-, I hope anyone who's listening has the same questions about the movie. I hope we answered them. Uh, we, sh- we should move on to the next question, though, as much as I hate the derail art discussion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so our next question actually comes from Nick. And I guess since we're going who? to spoilery questions. <laughs> uh, this is a question of who is that weird guy on the cover pretending to be the 64th successor to Hokuro Shinka? He doesn't have the signature helmet or shotgun. <laughs> a friend told me to ask me that. <laughs> uh, more, more like a, th- a friend threatened me if I didn't ask that. I think that's a more accurate depiction of what happened. But yeah, I mean, that's that's a picture of what's to come. Yeah, he made a bad <laughs> comment about his face and is either you asked this or uh, he ripped yours off. <laughs> I gotta say a quick story about that guy that I have. I had the old Uniqlo shirt with his face on it that's and that said, say my name. <laughs> and I ended up not wearing it often after people kept just like trying to talk to me about breaking that every time I wore it. <laughs> no. See, I thought I thought you were gonna say like, man, I, st- I, I stopped wearing that shirt. Everybody just uh, just kept yelling Diana at me every day and all day. <laughs> no, no, people would come up to me like at the grocery store every time I was wearing that and be like, oh man, Breaking Bad was great, and I'm just like staring and I'm like, what? <laughs> Imagine. Oh, man. Imagine Walter White, instead of cooking meth or whatever, he was like, <laughs> he, he formed a gang and by pretending to be the successor of Fist in the North Star. He's <laughs> <It's> like <laughs> running his own empire that way. I, I want if... God forbid if there's ever another live action adaptation of Fist of the North Star. Don't put that evil no, on please us. No. Don't. Please no. Stop. No, just no. don't. Just stop. Going with this, no. And I almost want to see the meme of Brian Cranston being Joggy. I want to see Brian Cranston be Joggy and just be like, I am the 64th successor to Hokuto Shinkai. <laughs> Like in a Twitter post or at a convention, as for fun and no way associated with anything behind a camera, please. God. <laughs> um, here, what's the next question? So, I mean, on the subject of villains, we got a question from Silent Fanatic who asked, What's the fixation with Japanese media? Are villains being forgiven after they're beaten and about to die? Uh, Hokuto Ken and Yakuza have some truly reprehensible foes who abuse women and children only to find instant amnesty after sharing their own hard luck origins. I think this depends on the character. That, that That's my blanket opinion on this kind of thing. I do too, and I have some thoughts. That I think it's not just that, like, yes, these people did horrible things, but I think it's a redemption fantasy. The sort of people who've been really hurt wanting to believe that there is good in the people who hurt them 
and that given the chance, anybody can be redeemed for whatever they did, that like, that nobody is truly a lost cause. That is a very compelling viewpoint for a lot of people. And I think that especially in the type of shonen series that really go hard towards the power of friendship, there's a reason why that keeps persisting. I, I, I'm going to address this question specifically to Fist the North Star, because that's what we're here for. But I think you can categorize the villains in three sections. Repentant, unrepentant, and row. <laughs> <laughs> and like, you know, we, we see a lot of unrepentant villains in the first volume of Fist of the North Star. Like, you know, all the, you know, spade, diamonds, club, um, heart just kind of dies, but. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but then we see a re- we see kind of the first repentant hero with Shin because you know he does e- even though he is a jerk and he did some horrible stuff there's a subtext of him being like yeah I made some mistakes and nothing I can do will will ever change that and you know because he's Shin, he just sticks his middle finger up and says, peace out, and jumps off the building. But, you know, the the kind of the revealing of his backstory and all that is him repenting to Kenshiro and saying, you know, this is how it has to end. Otherwise, I'm going to keep doing this, you know. So it really depends on the character in question. But in Fist of the North Star, you know, you get both. You get villains that are just bad to the core and die that way. And you get villains that they eventually see the light. So, you know, it's 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 just a thing with a lot of these comics. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I kind of take issue with the word amnesty specifically and it being like, you know, when we I guess when we understand this kind of the hyper reality, if you will, of of fiction and especially I mean, manga, especially having and Wuxia and all the things inspired by it, having, you know, kind of a background in theater. Um, this is the soliloquy before the audience, right? Just as you know, you've, you've been defeated and it's time to say a few last words to the audience before you leave. I don't necessarily know if it's always about forgiveness. I'm not sure if the audience is always supposed to understand it as like, ah, well, once I understand this this character's background, I'm supposed to forgive them. I think you're just supposed to see that they were not always, not most of them were not always villains, like that the world made them into this and that the tragedy is that the path that they walked a path that led them here and whether that was sometimes by circumstance sometimes by choice at some point you know they crossed over and that's not really about forgiveness it's about understanding that like these tragic things happen to all of us and some of us come out villains some by choice and revel in it and some through just being misguided or whatever but like the, the, the especially understanding it as a, a work for adults and about regret and things like that that like Everybody's got a story, and I don't know if you're necessarily supposed to forgive them. I'm not sure if that's really the intent. Because even the heroes aren't necessarily all that heroic, and when we understand that they're operating in the the martial arts world and is not really one of pure heroism in, in the way that we'd understand it, right? A sort of shining ideal. It's really just about understanding the way tragedy plays a role in our lives. And sometimes it is the tragedy that they did. Like some of these people are unrepentant monsters who just really like to hurt people. And then some of them are just sort of tragic circumstances and, you know, there, but for the grace of God go I, so to speak. And I don't know if it's about forgiveness, but it is about understanding tragedy and pain 
and sorrow and you know what makes someone hurt someone else or, or go down that path i don't know if it's about forgiveness like ju- just because they're they're telling it to the audience and it has an element of sympathy to it i think it's also supposed to act as kind of a warning because like oh wow tragic things can happen to anybody and tragic things have happened to me have i become a villain will i become a villain like i should be on my guard like that you know i don't know if it's about forgiveness though I, I'm, I'm not sure you know not not to argue with that person but from my perspective as a viewer i don't always see it as like i'm supposed to forgive this person it's like i'm trying to understand what happens you know when tragedy occurs in people's lives and what turns them into a, a football armored motorcycle goon <laughs> licking blades and throwing children into pits like what makes them become that way you know there's no forgiveness there's just what happened <laughs> most of the villains are parables for people who have lost their way like showing how your obsession showing how uh desire or just how letting yourself being con- consumed by a singular kind of negative emotion can lead you astray could lead you to do harm and cause you to lose sight of like what's really in front of you and what's really important so I think they're good cautionary uh, tales, cautionary stories. Yeah, cautionary tale. Yeah. The relatability is like a warning to the audience. Like, be careful. You could become this too. Yeah, you can understand these wor- people weren't always the way they are. And you can see how they became that way. And you can like reflect and contemplate like on, hey, this is where this guy's life led astray. And then I can be mindful. Like as, as a reader, I can be mindful. You know, maybe I can learn a lesson from this example of how to not emulate that. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't know. I, I have I have such a hard time with these, like, sorts of discussions about, like, uh, not just with Fist of the North Star, but when it comes to different stories in general, where it's like, I, I, I feel like this is one of those things that, like, uh, people sometimes kind of tackle the wrong way. I don't know if that's a weird way of saying it, but I don't, I, I like, I have conversations with like my friends all the time about this kind of thing where it's like, Oh, how come in shows or whatever? Like they're always trying to make us forgive the bad guy. And it's like, I don't think that's necessarily the case. You know, like, again, it really depends on the story and the character. Cause not every situation is different or not every situation is the same, but I feel like with, I feel like with Fist of the North Star in particular, uh, as far as his first volume goes with Shin's story and everything, like, K- Kenshiro is not pointing at the reader and being like, you know, hey, you have already forgiven Shin. That's what you're supposed yeah. to do. Yeah, Sh- right. Shin's not that bad of a guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. you <know? laughs> and I don't think Shin is forgiven. Shin isn't forgiven. Like, Kenshiro has sympathy for Shin at the end because he understands yeah. and that's valid. what could have driven him to do what he did. So that's why he pays respects to Shin by burying him. But like, it's not like he forgives him for what he's done. It's not like Shin has redeemed himself in any way. He just... It's yeah. compassion. Yeah. Compassion, even for people who've done horrible things, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and the understanding that the ex- like it's not always necessarily having an emotion or a thought, but how you express it and go about it. Like Shin would do anything for Yuria, Kenshiro would do anything for Yuria. They have the exact same motivation, but the way in which it expresses itself, right? The the way in which it 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 sort of comes out in the world is in, a, in an oppositional direction, right? And in Kenshiro, we see that the same motivation can be a powerful one and one of healing and one of, like, and righteousness, whereas for Shin, it is his flaw. But they have the same motivation. And, like, that's important to muse on and reflect on how it's like, oh, well, having the right, in- you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Like, just because I have the right intentions, maybe my actions or the way in which I treat others may, in fact, make them bad because i'm doing harm in the world or taking from other people like that's i think that's supposed to add texture and reflection i don't know if it's about 
for you know uh, it's not about redemption and like a you know where will i go when i die it's about kind of like reflecting on the nature of suffering and how we how we impact other people's lives i don't think it's I don't think it's a rib dent. Yeah, I think yeah, I think I mean, it's I think it's valid for Kenshiro to have this like connection to Shin, where it's like, oh, we both love the same woman. So like, on on some level, I kind of understand his actions, even though he's done all these horrible things to me and her. You know. Yeah, and their characters are good parallels to each other about how the same emotion of love for someone can lead these two people on very different paths, and showing both in Kenshiro like a positive. Uh, how someone can be motivated by love to do positive things and in Shin how someone can be motivated by love to do destructive things and that's where like the cautionary tale comes in it's like hey you know reflect on your own emotions of love and consider emulating Kenshiro's example and avoiding falling into the pit trap Shin fell into that ultimately led into tragedy for him and Shin is a rare example of Kenshiro going out of his way to be like this guy has to die like oh yeah he, he doesn't even question i mean obviously based on what you see king's generals doing you know maybe bloody cross is not such a great place but <laughs> you know maybe there were some good things that shin was doing who knows that's not really explored and maybe so it's pretty irrelevant mm-hmm. i mean he was enslaving people and branding them so i don't ah, yeah that was club oh. that was club <laughs> But that was still under the umbrella of his empire. Your Honor, my my client could not have known everything that was going on in the empire. Well, I don't know. You should take some responsibility for that. Does the the emperor need concern himself with the pettiness of common man? I mean, come on. Did he kill just ruthlessly just a guy who was being a messenger to him and telling him stuff, right? Like he was porting on the dead. He's like, no. Now that we did see on screen. You came back without killing this guy and you just throws his hands in him and it's like you know i i think he's an unrepented murderer you know i don't your honor my defendant has an incredible cape with fur trim (laughs) that's got to count for something Uh, he's a beautiful man we'll forgive him you know shin has shin has great clothing when he's wearing clothing (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. oh man um we we could we could spend probably another hour talking about this but i think we should move on to the next question <laughs> yeah that was a great yeah. question mm-hmm. absolutely thank you slime fanatic uh last twitter question comes from new chujin and this is a question that's i think definitely up nick sally in particular but this is uh now that the core series is in english print what do you all think it'll take to get blue sky or other derivatives like the guidance if you go aji or dd in english as well buy it yeah just buy it <laughs> yeah <laughs> So I spent the better part of 10 years actively petitioning every single English publisher in the game to pick up this book. And I'm not just talking about like, you know, sending them emails and stuff. When I, when I was working kind of directly with, with manga publishers about what was going on and stalking issues and stuff, I brought this up constantly. And it was, it's one of those things that, you know, nobody really wanted to touch because its track record in English is not so great and that kind of stuff. And kind of what's propelled JoJo into the state it is, is, is kind of a, a parallel to this, is the fact that it has a newer anime that brought a lot of attention to it. The fact that Fist of the North Star does not have that and Fist of the Blue Sky is a... Oof. It's an acquired taste. I'm a fan... <laughs> 
But I will openly admit it is an acquired taste. It's ugly. I'm sorry. It's just really, really ugly. Well, thank goodness that CG adaptation came out because that was beautiful, right, gang? That was just a. Uh, <laughs> I, I actually like that. Believe it. Really? Or not. I watched it. I enjoyed uh, it. It was wild. Uh, that's what I'll say. Um, but Tetsuo Hara's other stuff is—you gotta be a fan to get into it. Um, I will definitely say that Cyber Blue is worth everyone's time. It's two volumes. It's short. It's Tetsuara and Bronson saying, yeah, we saw RoboCop and Terminator. Let's make a comic about it. Um, and Blade Runner. But it, it's going to take some considerable sales to convince anyone that his, the rest of his catalog is going to have the same kind of impact on Fist of the North Star. Mm. Yeah. yeah. If you like this, buy it. Buy every single volume. Tell your friends about it become extremely annoying on twitter.com about about <laughs> fist of the north star give it to your friends for their birthday just <laughs> just become extremely annoying about how much you love this series and how everyone needs to give it a chance and that is the best thing you can be doing right now yeah just buy as much as you can honestly that's that's kind of the best advice we could all probably give our listeners you know mm-hmm. the kind of common knowledge is that you know, the earlier volumes of an English manga print run are the highest. The later volumes are the lowest. Do not wait until the series wraps to start buying it. Like, mm-hmm. just, it's going to develop. The, this is just the warm-up round, and the warm-up round is already outrageous and excellent. So just, like, go for it, and don't worry. You will enjoy it. I'm sure by the time this episode comes out, we will probably already know the answer. But I am genuinely curious about like uh, what what its sales are going to look like here in the next month, uh, like whether it's going to like chart on like those top sales charts or not. I'd be interested in seeing that. Yeah, mm-hmm. that would be nice. But the fact that it's here in this beautiful package is a miracle in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So I have high expectations, but. Well, it's just a matter of time now. Yeah, I feel like I feel like we made it to the Super Bowl, and it's like, so what are your plans for next season? Like, please just let me let me enjoy where we're at right now. Like, I, let me just finish the Super Bowl. Yeah, let me play this game first. Like, I'm ready to buy every one of these volumes and have them on my shelf and run my fingers across the spines and read them again and again and again. <laughs> I would certainly. Lo- I think it's always good to have more manga in print for people to buy. I hope it's aspirational. It sure would be great, but I don't. I'm just. I just want to. Let's let's get this one. I'm. I'm not holding my hopes up either. I. I, I think it again. Like like Nick said, it's a little more. Uh, a little more specific. Uh, with some of the other works, and I, I'd be real curious to see if they even try. But I. Just, I want to get this one done first. Maybe. <laughs> may, yeah. Maybe if Fist of the North Star gets a new anime, then maybe uh, this might look into other stuff. Yeah. I could see that happening, but we'll have to wait and see if that yeah. ever happens. Fist of the North Star is is timeless. Fist of the Blue Sky has some significant problems considering its its historical context. Like it's set in the time when it's set in like during the Manchurian invasion and stuff, and it's set in China. Big freaking oof. Yeah. And it just kind of ignores the fact that Japan was an occupying force and doesn't engage with it whatsoever. While that's the backdrop of the series. And it's like, there are some really problematic elements of of Fist of the Blue Sky. So, 
uh, you know, and English publishers might not want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. So I would I would say Han- the um, Hanantokeji, I'd say that would be a safer bet. Really? Um, even though it's a lot longer than Fist of the Blue Sky. I would love to see Hanantokeji, like, it translated even. I w- I've always wanted to check that out. Yeah, another classic or another title Raijin put out a little bit of. So hey, you know, one licensed rescue from Raijin in Fist and Arts, maybe KG could uh, happen suit. Maybe. But uh Raijin was so ahead of his <laughs> time. Yeah. I will say on the subject of, of other horror works, I am surprised no one has kinda picked up Akusa Nako sublicensed it because uh, Silent Manga Edition like did translate legally the first 17 chapters way back when they were doing like uh, translated uh, simul- not really simuls but translated releases of certain manga series like uh, that and art and a few other series I was reading on there so I- I'm surprised there were like s- at least 17 chapters that had already been translated I'm surprised no one else has just continued work on that because art te- eventually got picked up uh, by someone else to get continued translations so you know I would like to see that that's his most recent series uh, I did enjoy what I read of it so I would like to see that uh, get continued to be translated released somewhere Mm-hmm. But yeah, just to put a bow on this, just just keep buying Fist of the North Star. We'll see what happens. But I think that's about it for Twitter questions if we want to round off with some Reddit stuff. Yeah, we got some questions off of Reddit, and we have spoiled some things already, but this is going to be the big spoiler now. So if you really don't want to know anything that happens later in Fist, uh, skip this question. Skip skip ahead. Yeah, t- time code's in the description. So we our first question comes here from Master Day 93 who... They heard that there was a funeral held for Rao when he died at the end of the first series. And apparently he said it was such a big deal that people were mourning in the streets. So it was interesting to go more into that subject. And also continuing off that, Reddit fuel is my depress, which is a, a great username. Also commented that they're pretty sure that there was an IRL waiting for Kenshin and Yuri at some point as well. And that it was part of some anniversary of the series. Now, there was indeed a real-life funeral held for Rao. However, it did not happen during the time of the series of serialization. Uh, it did not happen for decades after that. The funeral for Rao was kind of a, a promotional event, a publicity stunt for, uh, in the late 2000s, there were these, like, Fist of the North Star Gaiden films. And so before the second one of those films came up in, like, uh, the spring of 2007, there was, like, a promotional event Kuomics put on for about 3,000 fans to have, like, a mock funeral for Rao. And then Rao's voice actor for those films, which is not the same as the original voice actor for Rao, also was in attendance there. But, yeah, so there was, like, an event funeral for Rao, but it wasn't, like in the aftermath of Rao's death during the manga serialization, they held this funeral. It's very different from in Ashina no Joe, character die. There was, at the time of that series, serialization, uh, people did genuinely, a fan event, a fan-organized funeral was held because people were affected that much by the death of that character. Not as much in this example. This example was kind of like, again, promotional thing by uh, the producers of the Force of North Star Gaiden films. That said, the fact that people actually did celebrate that and it was not viewed as just a ha-ha, look at this crazy franchise thing, 
that does say it a lot. does i mean rao is a beloved character and again three thousand people showed up for it so well attended like oh it was uh it was a f- I think it would be a fun event to attend. Like, yeah, like I think it does go to show how beloved the character is. Uh, and similarly, yes, there was also a uh, staged Yuria Kenshiro wedding that happened for the 25th anniversary of Fist and the North Star in 2008. And that was uh, another special event where it was even more selective. Only 777 people got to attend that. Oof. And like... Bronson and Hara were in attendance there. Uh, their editor, Hori, attended. The composer of the, the anime OST. And then, like, yeah, so just a ton of guests were there to just, you know, uh, celebrate this mock wedding of, like, Kenshiro and Yuria. They called it a soul wedding ceremony. And you can see pictures of it online. They're pretty fun. They, like, had these statues of, like, Kenshiro and Yuria kind of made and put in, like, wedding attire. And it's kind of funny. Like, there's a picture. Delightful. Yeah, there's a picture of just people just, uh, you know, taking a, a wedding photo with the Kenshiro and Yuria statues. It's very fun. That's like the most Fist of the North Star thing ever because it's simultaneously <laughs> sweet and horribly, horribly brutal. <laughs> yeah, right. Man. It, it, it kind of reminds me to a lesser extent of like, I think there's an anecdote out there from Atro Oda about like when Krillin originally dies in uh, in the Dragon Ball manga when when that was published about how he and his friends were like sobbing over it when that happened. Um, I just I love hearing about stuff like this. Imagine beginning to go to their wedding and like getting your name in the guest book. Like what an honor that would be. Like I, I, know, I would right? just like moved. <laughs> when with Rao, it's more like you know showed up to one of my biggest haters' funerals just to make sure he was dead kind of thing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> rip, rip bozo laughing emojis kind of like it's a little different there but i'd love to be at the wedding it's, it's, it's just it's, yeah it's just that meme of you with the guy like doing the peace sign in front of like rouse grave <laughs> yeah. the, the wedding photos are so funny because yuri is wearing a wedding dress but kensher is just in his letter jacket it's just regular costume. there's just like a, uh, a yeah, that's on point. it's just very funny <laughs> okay, let me let me flip that around though. If you're going to marry Kenshiro, are you going to want him in a tux? No, no. put on the leather no. and the shoulder He's just pads. Rip out like the tux doing this right. <laughs> the only time he wears a tux is when he's bartending. Okay, yeah. it's real. <laughs> God, yeah, this is this is amazing, and I'm just so funny that they actually did this. Uh, it just shows the passion people still have for Fisher. I mean, again, it is an iconic, beloved franchise. Oh yeah. Uh, but yeah, our last question does touch upon some points we addressed before, but, you know, as we approach the end of the podcast, it might be good to restate or reaffirm them. But a Minotauric Traveler asked, you know, considering how popular Fizzin' North Star was and how greatly it impacted the manga as a whole, causing other manga at the time to gradually follow the same pattern board arc quicken teams like JoJo's Otokujuku, do you think it would have had the same effect and impact as a whole, even if Tetsuo Ohara wasn't the artist illustrating it? And... There's also a bonus question about anything about the Wiz release we didn't like. Uh, they thought that they we they did an amazing release, but they saw people complain about the onomatopoeia and sound effects. And we touched upon that last part. But yeah, it's an interesting question. Like, would Fist have been as well-remembered or would have been remembered the same way without Har's artwork? That's a good question. I don't know. No. <laughs> I... 
Who knows? That's that's. I I, I don't know. I, I don't have an answer for that question because I don't want to think of a world without Tetsuhara <laughs> drawing fists in our story. Right, right. I really don't think so. The story would have been is beautiful, but I think that it's the absolute like whole created by story plus art together that's part of what makes it so great. I don't know if it could have had the same impact without that artwork. Like when you think of so many of the moments that are the most emotional in the series, you don't just think of the plot beats. You think of Kenshiro's face while he's crying in that specific scene. Mm -hmm. Like the Mm -hmm. artwork is an inherent part of what made it so great. And without one, without the author or without the artist, it just wouldn't have been at all the same thing. Yeah, I I think, I think I'm leaning towards, you guys here, yeah, I think I think I agree. Absolutely. Yeah, especially given that it's a work that exists in a visual medium. You know, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how you could do it. I, I think it certainly would have had impact, and it would have been part of, you know, part of the oeuvre, if you will. But I, I don't see it having quite the same long reach. And in the same sense, even if it was pretty, but there was nothing under the hood. I think it also could have just fallen off. Like if it was just Tetsuohara's great art, right? And just yeah, the, 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 the shock and all that. I mean, you know, Ninja Scroll exists, but I don't know if I would call Ninja Scroll like a, a formative work. You know what I mean? It was a formative experience if you rented it at Blockbuster <laughs> not would, knowing yeah. what it was. And then you were just like, oh, I don't know if I wanted that. Yeah. Or you can see, you know, look at stuff like, I don't know, uh, like Gogo 13, the movie. Uh, Osama Dezaki directs the Gogo 13, the professional film. And... I mean, I'm not. I like Gogo 13 kind of from a Mimi standpoint. I don't think anybody would say it's it's rich literature necessarily. Um, and that film, Dazaki is such a he's such a deft hand at at delivering just visual tour de force. No matter what the, the material, he's gonna uplift it in some way. Um, but when you look at like Gogo 13, <laughs> like I wouldn't call it a formative work. I mean, obviously it's a different, it's slightly different in the sense that like the manga is ongoing and long running yeah. and, and all that. But I like, think the manga is considered an iconic, influential thing in its own right. But it's like, like this, I think this is both. It has the, the visual language and it also has the, like the strong core underneath from the writing. If you remove one of those, you're changing the system in a pretty profound way, especially given um, the way they played off each other, like Nick was talking about earlier, like the way they play off each other as creators and we're doing this thing. I don't see how you could have it. Uh, it's 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 imagery and the subtext, too. It's both. Yeah. We can look at an extreme example of that where you take both of them out of the equation, which you get Bobo Bo, which is a direct like. <laughs> so seriously, no, like, yeah, yeah. Bobo Bo is 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 gag manga fist of the North Star. Yeah. yeah. Right. And it's minus Bronson and Tetsuohara, but it still has kind of like the same very general per- premise. And I'm being kind of kind of <laughs> generous here with that, but you know, it's it's kind of the same idea, but with two with a different creator taking you know t- taking an approach to it. No, so, no, I, I, I see you what know? you mean. It'd be a like, very different series. It is the combination of Baronson and Hara together that makes Fist and North Star what it is. And if one of them were not part of the equation, like it might still have been remembered as a really great series, but it wouldn't be remembered as the Fifths of the North Star we know it today. Mm-hmm. Right. No, I, I I see what Nick is saying because like uh again, going back to Gintava, because I'm incapable of it. Um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but, but with uh, Gintama in particular, you know, you could tell that, like, uh, when it starts off that it's, um, you know, unfortunately nowadays, um, you know, it's it's cribbing a lot from the setting of something like Rurouni Kenshin. Kenshin, you know. 
it, yeah, it wears right, those right. influences on its Oof. sleeve, but you know, as it goes on, it really becomes like its own thing, and ar- arguably, arguably, very arguably, you know, better than the thing it cribbed off of. You know, that's just my opinion. I know some people might not feel the same way. Come attack me; it's fine. I certainly prefer Sirachi. If we're yeah, being no, you know what I mean? Like full disclosure, unquestionably. <laughs> I was just thinking, thank you for saying what I was thinking. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> no contest. No, yeah. It, it's the same thing with Bobo Bo. Like, it, do, it does crib from Fist of the North Star, but it does eventually, like, really become its own thing. That's kind of unlike anything yeah, else. I mean, yeah. It's a parody. It's a direct parody of Fist of the North Star, but, like, also from the beginning, it's like a gag comedy about yeah. a guy fighting with his nose hairs. Yeah, yeah. In a world where he's fighting against people who are sh- shaving the hair off of everyone, so Hokuto Shinken, Hanage Shinken, yeah. exactly. I mean, yeah, very direct. <laughs> like, I'm gonna be honest with you guys. I watched uh, that Fist of the North Star movie yesterday, and then immediately after that, I was like, I'm gonna rewatch Bobo Bo now. And I watched the first couple episodes of Bobo Bo immediately after that. <laughs> all roads lead to Bobo Bo. <laughs> it's also worth noting that the voice actor who played Bobo Bo. Then went on to play Kenshiro in in the uh, the OVA I series. I remember that. The OVA yeah. movie series. <laughs> God, I need to watch those again. But um, it's a circle, you guys. I mean, it is Koyasu. <laughs> I mean. God, Koyasu's amazing um, at everything he does. Fist of the North Star is this very delicate closed system where if you touch even one part, it immediately transforms into Bobo Bo. You can- <laughs> you be- it's like delicately balanced House of Cards. Oh, man. <laughs> Uh, but Lum, did you want to read the response to that question? or uh, I mean, the response was more to the sound effects question, which, you know, we kind of concur with these sentiments of like, you know, Master Nate responded that I was disappointed to see the sound effects translated. While it was appealing to the casual reader, I think an element of the art is lost when it's translated. An example of a recent manga release that they think handles, you know, sound effects well is Kaiji, and they think that smaller English text under the original Japanese sound effects is the best way. After a while of seeing the same ones over and over, most people don't need to continue reading the subtitles. I think that sometimes when you have both the English text and Japanese text together on the same page, that can get a little cluttered. No, oh, yeah. Um, and in this case, with, like, how detailed, like, every panel of of Fist and Sorrels, I think that would definitely would have gotten cluttered. So I think really one or the other would have been the approach here. And um, like if they were to retain the Japanese sound effects, I think what they could have done would just have the glossary of the sound effects, like just kind of explaining what they mean at the end of the book. There are definitely some uh, long releases that do that. And I think that's very effective. Uh, like Excel Sagas did that. And I thought that was pretty good. So yeah, like I, uh, I mean, we had the conversation. I think that generally, you know, it's not a bad approach to redo the sound effects, uh, in English. I just think that the approach here just didn't have the same impact because the intent of like just trying to perfectly match the placement of the letters to the where the Japanese sound effects were doesn't always work because oftentimes that distorted the letters and made them lose that same sense of dynamic impact the original sound effects had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't bring this up earlier, but I did have a few problems with some of the translation choices they made in this in this volume. Particularly like the language throughout the book is like crude, it's crass, and it seems like there's a split 
in in this English edition where they're actively trying to avoid that to an extent in the first half and then just decide, nah, it's all right, and then just let it let it flow. Um and it's it's it feels but so here's the problem. There there's a lot of nuances with what is happening in the language in the Japanese edition that's like impossible to translate unless you spend an ungodly amount of time in a creative way to do it. Um, so I, I understand that part of it, but it's a very unique experience going from kind of this, this like outrageous over the top dialogue to, uh, less than that in, in the English release. And maybe that's a fault of English, that's that's a distinct possibility but there are also a couple of instances of just direct mistranslation that i noticed but that's like it's like one or two pages it's a thing that can be fixed in editorial and it's like the most nitpicky thing in the universe but it's not something that like completely contextual recontextualizes the entire story or whatever no 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 like in in the end of the first volume they they reference godland as god's land and in the original text yes it's kami no kuni but right next to it, it says Godorando in, in Katakana <laughs> as like a pronunciation guide. So, and like, that's the same as it's been in multiple official adaptations. So, you know, I, I, I don't know. But there's also like, yes, they finally corrected the whole, is it Lin? Is it Rin? It's Rin, by the way. Um, they corrected that, but then made the same mistake with another character named Lima, which in the original text, their name is, is Rima. So it's like, uh, it's, it's just these weird little things that don't detract from the experience whatsoever. And I'm nitpicking like crazy. Can I ask one quick mm. question before we round out here soon? Uh, so was Yuria's name ever Julia in any official capacity? Or was that just like a Scanlation thing? Uh, in the, the English job of the movie, they called her Julia instead okay. of Julia. So that's interesting. Some some versions seem to have called her Julia. I seem to remember seeing something where the subtitles said Julia while the audio said Yuria, but my memory for anime that I've watched like ten or more years ago is not always the best. No, I I was just curious because I legitimately couldn't remember if that was like a scanlation thing I might have seen or not. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, uh, I guess that's about it for questions then, huh? Indeed. Thank you, everyone, for submitting them in. These were some really great questions. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I want to apologize to all of our guests for being here an hour more than I thought we were going to. Um, but it's okay. We still had like a really good this discussion. This is still pretty though. conservative for our standards, let's be fair. <laughs> West Coast, West Coast, I'm great. I mean, we're not going to spend another two hours just talking about Shin. I'm ready. Let's go, guys. I'm ready for the Shin discourse. If, if we're if we're going to have it, I'm ready for it. Too. Well, maybe maybe we'll get into that when we eventually come back to Fist of the North Star when it's hopefully eventually completed. Um, but no, seriously, thank you guys so much for like coming on and spending so much time talking about Fist of the North Star with us. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. I do us. not have to be convinced to come and talk about this <laughs> sure. to the North Star right, with right. a bunch of nice people. <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, but uh, I'm I'm looking forward to revisiting Fist of the North Star because it, again, this is one of those things that is going to be worth really revisiting when we actually like uh, are able to like read through all of it and actually have it all available. Um, I th- I'm just just a warning for 
for uh, for the future. That's probably going to be a long episode. I can't promise that it's not going to be three hours long. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um. But yeah. No. I guess. Um. I guess we can wrap up by you know having everybody here uh plug their stuff before we go. I guess. Uh, Nick, if you want to start, I I don't. You might have like the least to plug out of everybody, but I don't. You, prove me wrong. I don't know. Yeah, no, I'm I'm out of the game now. I'm I'm in education now, so I don't have very much to plug. But, um, yeah, I, I am now writing stuff again for All Comic. Go check All Comic out, which is where Manga Mavericks is hosted. Hey, how about that? Yeah, Ooh, and you wrote a great review of Yakuza Lover recently. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but yeah, that's all I got. <laughs> Read Fist of the North Star. <laughs> um, I guess uh, Diana, do you want to go next? Uh, yeah. My Twitter is at Silence Drowns. It's King Crimson Lyrics because that's the kind of person well, you, you I don't am. Say. Uh, <laughs> about the only thing I've been up to lately is a bunch of tweeting, and I have two very great cats that I hope you look at. My costuming has been kind of at a lull, but hopefully I'll have something really cool then soon. All right. Um, nice. And then I guess Grant, it's your turn. Oh, geez. Well, I also want to plug Diana's cats, who are uh, perfect angels, who I enjoy looking at on Twitter. Um, Thank you. I, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Grant the Thief, just posting absolute nonsense constantly. Uh, you can listen to me on uh, some of the other shows here uh, that, that some folks here are involved in. But uh, my primary podcasting homes are the Blade Licking Thieves, where me and some buddies uh, do our our darndest to review films together, usually sitting on the couch. And thanks to vaccines, we'll be doing so again soon. Then I'm also, uh, I co-host Super Senpai Podcast, where me and my buddy Pat review tokusatsu shows and talk about uh, all wonderful rubber suits and cardboard buildings. Uh, and you can find me usually writing for ANN. Uh, I do the One Piece reviews there, as well as some other shows and series and things like that. Sometimes they throw Monster Girl shows at me. Sometimes I'm reviewing Ninja Gaiden game collections. Man, I don't know. Lindsay just, you know, she'll just whatever. She'll throw it at me. <laughs> <laughs> but mainly One Piece. <laughs> oh, man. I mean... You know, I, I've probably said it on every podcast that I do with Grant, but like, please go listen to Blade Licking Thieves. It's legitimately like <laughs> one of my favorite podcasts to listen to. And I'm probably gonna, I'm probably gonna listen to that Fist of the North Star episode that you guys did a little while back. I, I, I need to actually like sit down and watch the film and then listen. Yeah, please, please do. I, again, I think it's a good example of what happens when you try to show your friends uh, what is a good film, but it can be bewildering to them. But thank you. I, I'm glad you enjoy the show. That's definitely something that that was my first thing to get into fandom was doing that podcast and twitter was just for for sort of promoting the show and now here i am with my finger in a thousand pies right <laughs> <laughs> one last quick thing before we head out uh you know uh, i mean i just want to thank grant for finally coming on the main show it's been something we've been trying to trying to work out for for a while now but i mean if, if you always glad to be here with good no, people for sure i mean if you want to listen to more of grant on our stuff we 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 did do a uh, kind of read through of uh, jojo's part one uh, a little while back that you can find on our Patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Hopefully we'll do another JoJo read through at some point. Put me in coach. Put me we're, in. we're still kind of, I'm still kind of like working things out as far as like our Patreon schedules with our like bonus podcasts and stuff. But like that is, that is something I want to get back to eventually. Maybe when we're done with, uh, uh, our Saint Seiya read-through on the Patreon. Again, uh, you can find all that stuff at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, the first episode of that JoJo read-through is actually on our on our main feed if people want like a free preview of that. But uh, I had a lot of fun going through that, and hopefully we'll kind of get back to JoJo's in the future. But that's just kind of something to look forward to. Yes, please get back to JoJo. Isn't this basically JoJo's episode two? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
didn't we just review? This is a JoJo's reference, right? Like, didn't we just? <laughs> yeah, so someone finds first volume Fist of the North Star at like Barnes and Noble, and they're like, "Is that a is that a motherfucking JoJo's reference?" Uh, <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> wow, I love Jonathan Joe Star from hit manga JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, artwork by Tetsuo Hara. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, I, I I seriously can't like thank you guys enough for coming on, and I'm really looking forward to like revisiting this in the future, but. Lum, I think we should go on ahead and get into community shoutouts and wrap up the rest of the show. Yeah, it's time to head into the sunset, continuing to wander the desert that is podcasting on our never-ending search for peace. Thanks again to Grant, Diana, and Nick for coming on the show to chat Fist of the North Star with us. It was a fantastic podcast, and I'm looking forward to us reconvening in a few years to cover the entirety of the series when Viz completes their re-release of it. But I hope you enjoyed this primer of Fist of the North Star going over what makes it so special early on in the story. The art, the influences, the storytelling, the themes, the character of Kenshiro himself. We covered a lot of bases. It was great. And for more info on Fist North Star, more on the background, more on discussion of themes, characters, and the works, well, that's what we're going to dig into in our community shoutouts. As mentioned on the show, I learned a lot about kind of the early attempts to localize just in a North Star by both Viz and Raijin from Jason Thompson's House of a Thousand Manga article on Viz and North Star, which not only provides a great discussion analysis of what makes the series so cool, but Indy also goes into detail on like Viz's attempts to release Viz and North Star. How did it pan out? But when they did kind of like go to the license, they held like a, a Viz and North Star going away party, which is a really fun story to hear about. And of course, Jason writes in great detail about what makes the series so special. So, yeah, you gotta read that. It's a great history lesson from a guy who was there on the ground floor trying to to help with Viz's first attempt to release the series. And now on the subject of interviews, uh, Wiz recently did an interview with Tetsuhara, like, to promote the new Fizz release. And it's also, like, a short but fun little interview in which Tetsuhara uh, kind of gives like you know their thoughts on what, how Fist and North Star's popularity has been received or was like working with Ronson how they do their work now in terms of like illustrating and their favorite moments and thoughts on the series it's also a really nice interview it's short but it's, it's interesting to hear from the man himself and for another person's thoughts on Fist and North Star in an interview, you can check out Borinkin has translated a 2017 interview Drumuko Takahashi did about her fan of Fist and North Star, which was from a few years back. And it was, it's also a fun interview just to hear about her fandom. Like, obviously, this series is running while she was an established creator. It is pretty cool to hear, like, what she respond to about the series and resonated with her. So, like, as a fan of both Rukunagahashi and Fizzrothards, it's cool to see how one thing can influence another person. 
And similarly, David Brothers digs into what Fist of the North Star means to him and how it inspires the comics that he's writing and making now. Specifically, he wrote a piece where he talks about how Fist of the North Star was like kind of the foundation for an idea to have in a chapter of the series Good Devils that he's working on. And it's pretty cool to like see him go into like his history with Fist of the North Star, what resonated about it with him. And then how we kind of brought those influences in to Good Devils, which makes me excited to read the series. And also, like, it's just another really nice, thoughtful piece on Fizzanon Star from a guy you know is super passionate about it. I think, though, the probably the, the granddaddy of all articles or, like, resources on Fizzanon North Star recently definitely comes from... Tim Eldred's, like, extensive series profile on Fist of the North Star, which not only tracks the background of Fist of the North Star, like, it's it's hit production history, the history of the manga history, of the anime, the franchise as a whole, but has so many links to cool commercials, cool videos, and informational pages, has, like, extensive guides to different editions of the manga, and books that here's published in, different home video releases, all the spin-offs, music tracks, and includes interviews with the production team that goes into, like, their process making the show, their thoughts on making the show and the movie, like, it is just an extensive profile on Fist of the North Star that'll really give you, like, the full scope of the franchise. And it is just a really cool thing. So definitely check that out. Like, they did a really incredible job on that. Now, for more cool insights on some uh, other parts of the franchise, or an obscure part of the franchise, I really love Mercury Falcon's recent video on the gag dub of Fist of the North Star that was produced in France called Ken the Savant, which was really funny. Like, they basically did a parody dub of Fist of the North Star in France in which they they basically changed all the names and attacks to, like, funny French cuisine, and then they had jokes, like, peppered throughout the dialogue. They didn't take the story seriously at all. And it's very funny just to hear about the different ways they changed the story, but how even with those changes, like, the series was well-beloved in France, and people have a lot of fondness and nostalgia for it, even though it's such, you know, a very liberal, very loose dub of the show. So it's fun to learn about, like, this kind of obscure piece of dubbing history, obscure piece of, like, you know, international dubbing history. So it's a lot of fun. Definitely check out that video. And another great video on Fizz specifically the movie, is from Renegade Cut. A few years ago, they made a piece on the movie, digging into Fist and North Star from the perspective of Russian philosopher Peter Kropotkin to analyze the idea of does might make right and how Fist and North Star as a series explores that concept in its storytelling, which is a really great piece. I appreciate how seriously they took the topic and they did a really great analysis of that team from the lens of the movie. And of course, as mentioned on the show, Grant and his crew on the Blade Licking team they covered the Fist of the North Star movie a few years ago. And, you know, we talked about it a little bit on this episode, but I was surprised that, you know, his crewmates were a little 
less enthusiastic about the movie than I thought, but I think they had a really great discussion about its ranks and some of its weaknesses to newcomers, like some things that might be impenetrable, might not make a ton of sense. But overall, I thought, you know, they also did a good job of discussing the series in general and what makes it very appealing, even to a newcomer uh, neophyte to the franchise. So I thought they did a great job there. And of course, speaking of Grant and podcasting, you know, Grant also did a podcast with Don of the Anime Nostalgia Podcast for an Anime Nostalgia Podcast episode on Fist North Star, which is really great. The 100th episode of the Anime Nostalgia Podcast was so cool. And yeah, they had a fantastic conversation about the series. Also fairly spoiler-free, too, but a really great conversation on its history, its legacy, what's so appealing resonant about it. Like, just another really great thorough conversation with Fizz and North Star, so definitely, definitely check that out. And finally, not Fizz and North Star related, but another podcast for Andrew's on, check out his appearance on Saturday Night Shoggy to talk about Super Sentai Goranger, which, you know, classic manga inspiration for Super Sentai series and what became Power Rangers and Grant had a lot of cool thoughts on it you know from his perspective as a toku satsu and sentai lover so definitely check out that episode of the SNS as well and I think that about does it for shoutouts for this time a lot of cool things for you guys to check out there's just so much to explore in the world of Fist and Heartstar and we definitely will be returning to it at a future date as well but for now, I think we will, again, wrap up the show and go off, wandering off into the desert like intro, like continually in search of something we yearn for and yet not found. Or rather, we'll go off and you'll see us again in the next episode of this podcast. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, Actually, can I just add one more thing before we get into plugs that uh, I... I forget if we mentioned it in our discussion or not, or if Grant plugged it, but um, speaking of Grant, you should also go read his review on uh, Anime News Network at the first volume. Uh, Mm -hmm. I thought it was a very great uh, review. When you read it, you can obviously tell, like how much Grant really loves the franchise and how much he really like wants new people to get into it. Um, And yeah, I I just thought it was a great review in general in, uh, redundant but in general i also really like grant's reviews on anime news network so some of his reviews on some of the stuff he's like reviewed like manga wise has uh really helped me in terms of like oh like should i check this thing out or not like they're actually genuinely like very helpful um so you know not just that but just just read his stuff at anime news network in in general like they're all usually really great articles and reviews Absolutely. Check it out. Check all of Grant's stuff out. Grant is great. We love him. We can't wait to have him on the show again. Oh, yeah, for sure. But until that future occasion, we'll let you know where you can find and follow us to hear about more of what we're up to and doing. And starting off with me, you can find me at LaRamiyasha on Twitter. And it's on Ramiyasha on a variety of places like Animation Revelation and Anime. So wherever there's a LaRamiyasha, that's you can find me. You can also find me on AldashiKama.com, where I manga reviews. you got a lot of books coming in, a lot of reviews going out. So look forward to more on there. And in fact, we do have a Fist and Art Star review on AldashiKama.com from VLord. So another plug to that because we Lord definitely had a lot of thoughts on the series uh, particularly you know you you heard us discuss the letter and on the show but we Lord definitely has a dedicated paragraph to talk about 
how they are not a big fan of the lettering in the English release. But in general, we lord newcomer to Fist and Hardstar, very good thoughts on the first volume and what they like about it so far. So check that out. But yeah, you can find more cool manga reviews from me and Lord on there. And uh, you can also find on there all the other podcasts I do, including my website, movies, the show we're talking about, anime movies, and Lung Squad. The show where me and my good friend Andrew A.C. Yoshimura talk about the wonderful lucky world of Rugo Takashi's Year of the Yatsura. We've been having a lot of fun going through and catching up with Mrs. Releases of the Manga. And now we're tackling the movies and we're having a lot of fun doing that. So look forward to more episodes on there. And you can also find that pretty much every podcast platform you can think of. Wherever Manga Arts is, you can also find Monk Squad and Manga Arts at Movies. I and mean, they're also in the same feeds. Uh, and also you can follow Monk Squad on Twitter at Lum underscore squad. And finally, if you like the art I make, the art I draw for this show, all the podcasts I do, and the animation illustrations I make in general, you can find all of that on my Instagram at SidArtWorks. All right, but as for me, I'm Colton. You could find me on Twitter at StiperKing323. I also host and produce a few other podcasts besides this one that you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Uh, I have a page there dedicated with links to basically everything I do, uh, past and present, even whatever guest spots I'm on, on other podcasts and stuff. Again, you can find all that and more at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Uh, but as for Manga Mavericks on the podcast, you can find every episode on all-comic.com. is where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Where at the $2 tier, you have the chance to listen to select early editions of our podcast. Uh, basically, if we're doing good on our uh, editing schedule in particular, and we and we happen to have an episode kind of edited before we're meant to put it on our main feed, we'll put it up on our Patreon first for our patrons to listen to. Um, again, kind of depends on our timing and our schedule and everything. But again, that's where we'll usually put it up first if we happen to have uh, episodes edited early. Uh, but if you want more like consistent, exclusive content, you want to sign up for our $5 tier, in which uh, basically at the end of every month, we upload a, an exclusive bonus podcast for patrons only. Basically, at the end of this month, at the end of July, uh, we're going to be putting up a special recording that uh, we all did in the same room together. That's uh, uh, me, Lum, V-Lord, and uh, Sakaki. Uh, we all got to hang out together a few weeks ago in my hometown of St. Louis, you know, just do whatever, hang out, be friends, all that stuff at Colton con, as I like to call it, you know, we got to talk about uh, all the stuff we kind of did throughout like the first half of the weekend, at least. And uh, also got to talk about our thoughts on dragon ball evolution because we sat down and forced Sakaki to watch it for the first time. <laughs> and it was very fun. Uh, so basically, if you want to hear our thoughts on that movie and just, just talk about how terrible it is. Uh, we're going to have that up at the end of this month, at the end of July. Uh, actually, for all patrons, uh, we're actually going to make that available for every patron, uh, no matter what you're pledging every month. Uh, even if you're pledging for as low as a dollar, that's going to be available to you. Uh, so please look forward to that. Again, you can find all this and more at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. If you support us there, we really appreciate it. And it really kind of helps us keep the lights on and everything. And, you know, it's it's the best way for you guys to support us and everything we do here. And we really appreciate your patronage. So there's that. And I guess as for everything else, you can follow us on facebook.com slash all.comic or on twitter.com slash allcomic underscore. But if you want to follow Manga Mavericks specifically, you want to follow us on Twitter at manga underscore Mavericks. 
or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash mangamavericks, where we post different excerpts of the podcast and even some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash mangamavericks. Email us anything at mangamavericks at gmail.com. Uh, what are your thoughts on Fist of the North Star? Uh, do you have any thoughts on uh, whatever manga you're reading at the moment? Uh, any manga that you want us to talk about on the show? You know, email us about manga or the podcast or anything, and we'll read it on the show. We love getting emails. Uh, again, that's at mangamavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or basically wherever you listen to this show because we're available on so many different platforms at this point. But especially on Apple Podcasts, if you can leave us a rating and a review on there. Again, it really helps the visibility of our show. And just in general, we love getting feedback from you guys. Uh, We take all of it very seriously and use it as best we can to make the show that much better. But I guess uh, until then, that's going to be about it for this episode. Uh, This has been episode 167 of the Manga Mavericks podcast on allcomic.com. And we will see you guys next time for episode 168. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.